0: Everybody, welcome to the Universal Dialect Show. I'm your host, Chris Cypher73Cabrera. This is show number 22. I'm um, very happy that I made it to 22 shows and this is the last show of the year. I'm going to call it quits for the rest of this year and then I'll start a new next year. But I'm going out uh, with a huge bang. I have David Marler. How are you doing, David Marler? I'm doing great, Chris. Do you mind if I call you David or Dave or is Dave, it David you know? it doesn't matter. Just don't call me Davey. <laughs> I won't call you Davey or Shirley, right? From the... <laughs> don't
1: call me Shirley. <laughs>
0: yeah, like from the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so let me go through your dossier. Uh, you're a researcher. You're also a field investigator, state section director, Illinois state director of MUFON. Is that correct? Are you still have those titles? Yep.
1: No, that was actually back in the day. Uh, I've actually since uh, moved on and done independent research, but that was where I really cut my teeth as an investigator.
0: All right. Awesome. Um, You've also appeared and we had a conversation before I hit record on so many shows. You don't even remember probably half of them, but you've been on so many of them and you're also the author of the book triangular UFOs An estimate of the situation, which was released in 2013. Correct. Correct. All right. All right. All right, Dave. So listen, I I've, followed your career i've watched you on all these shows documentaries and everything and and you're one of the most comprehensive like researchers that i know like you bring really great information anything that you say because you know when people like start getting into like a topic and someone says something and then you go and do the research you find that you know they, they're not always telling the truth everything exactly. that you've said i mean i've i found other people have found you've been on like you know uh faith to black so many shows and uh, you, you're you're really like take this uh, ufology, you know, uh, topic to the next level with your research. Thank so you. can we get into your origin story of how you started and what led you on this path that you're currently on, sir?
1: Yeah, well, at the risk of dating myself, uh, you know, my, <laughs> my, right. my interest started way back in 1973. And I was only five years old at the time. But uh, I can very clearly remember the first time I ever heard the, the term UFO. And it was from my father. Uh, he was reading the local newspaper. Uh, we lived in St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis R.I.P. R- 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 to Norman. Miami. Yeah, and uh, so uh, in 1973, the spring of 1973 started a flap of UFO sightings that was occurring in southeast Missouri. Uh, about a, about an hour and a half, two hours to the southeast of St. Louis. What in year is small, this? This was 1973. Okay, 73. Early in 73. And of course, 73 was the big year, uh, yes. you know, across the United States with UFO sightings. Right. But this was a fairly localized area of sightings in and around a, a small town called Piedmont, Missouri. And much like any of these UFO flaps, Chris, as you know, it starts with one sighting, right? There, there's there's the spark that kind of ignites the fire. And then you have all these other sightings that occur. The first sighting or spark in this case was the sighting by the local basketball team coming home from a, a game that I think was in Dexter, Missouri, and the uh, basketball team, as well as the adult coaches, saw this unusual object with lights, and uh, it really caught their attention. The coach, the lead coach, was a gentleman by the name of Reggie Bone, and my father, and this is the link between the two stories, uh, my father was best friends growing up because he grew up in the Piedmont area, And he knew Reggie. They were good friends growing up. And I remember him saying, if Reggie said he saw something, you can take that to the bank. And he was a pillar of the community. Everyone respected him. He was not prone to lies and fantasy. And so that was really the start of the Piedmont UFO uh, wave. And as a result of that and subsequent sightings that that occurred after that, uh, local media was covering it on TV news in St. Louis. They were covering it in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And other local newspapers. And my father, my older brothers and my older sister were piling in my dad's Chevy with thermoses of coffee and binoculars and to go down to Piedmont to look for UFOs. And many people were doing that. Uh, Cars were flocking down there on weekends, setting up where they could have really good visibility of the the landscape in the area. And they were all looking for UFOs. My father, on a number of trips with my siblings, never did see anything, but they did talk to people and relatives that he had there that had seen unusual lights and objects. And so in 73, at five years old, I remember hearing this and the excitement of them leaving and then coming back and describing these stories of the people they talked to that saw, said they saw strange objects and lights in the sky. And I don't know if it was because I was five years old and I was impressionable, but it really just left a, a an indelible mark in my memory And then fast forward, that was in 73, fast forward four years later, my sister and her husband were driving home from St. Louis to Kansas City, Missouri, where they lived at the time. And uh, not to sound cliche, but they had a close encounter with a UFO right out of the the movie Close Encounter with Richard Dreyfuss, where they came to a stop sign in their neighborhood. They were getting in around midnight, uh, having traveled from St. Louis to Kansas City. They came to a a stop sign, and all of a sudden... The spotlight came down over the car, illuminated the area all around the car. The the, uh, atmospheric conditions that night, there was no wind. There was no downdraft as if it was a police helicopter with a spotlight. There was no noise. So completely silent, completely still, yet you have this intense spotlight around the vehicle. They could even see houses illuminated from the ambient light that was being created by this spotlight. My sister was asleep in the car and she remembers waking up to her husband, violently punching her in the arm and saying, Cheryl, wake up, wake up, wake up. And her first thought, even to this day, when you talk to her, her first thought was she knew she left uh, around seven or eight o'clock in, in the evening. She wakes up violently getting punched in the arm. And her first thought was, why is it daylight outside? Because she they had done the trip many times. They knew they'd be getting in around 11, 12 o'clock at night. And her first thought when she opened her eyes was, why is it daylight? That was how much it had illuminated the area around the car. And then obviously within a second or two, she didn't realize she's still getting punched in the arm. And uh, she started trying to process what was happening. And just as soon as the light had come on, and Chris, you know this from other reports, it went off like a, like a light switch was flipped. And uh, her husband was able to look out the driver's side window and he could see an array of lights attached attached to something. To this day, he couldn't tell you, give you a detail, but he said there was something above the car. And so that was in 1977. And then in 1978, a year later, much like Piedmont in 73, there was a UFO flap and kettle mutilations occurring to the north of St. Louis, which again garnered a lot of local media attention, both TV news and St. Louis newspapers. And I remember hearing and seeing that. And so, you know, some people have really dramatic personal experiences with UFOs. Mine was just really a successive series of exposure to the subject in the early mid-70s. And then, obviously, I became a teenager, had much more interest in other things, <laughs> like teenagers do when you hit puberty. Yep. I and agree then, And then fast forward, jumping over that awkward period in in growing up uh, in 1990, I heard about MUFON and joined MUFON and became actively involved in starting to investigate and really just read about the subject. That's where my little library started at the time. And by little library, I mean, little bookcase in my bedroom with a few books. And now you can see what's surrounding me here. It's just grown to epic proportions.
0: Is is that... Part of your house is that like a
1: wing of your house? Yes, my wife and I, and I have to give her a shout out. I have a beautiful, supportive, loving wife. Uh, <laughs> the, awesome. She, she she's the secret sauce uh, <laughs> behind my be, be, behind my work. Um, we uh, had all of this material building up in our home, and at that time, we decided something had to give. Either we start, you know, giving away this material, which was not going to happen. Or we look at potentially adding a new addition to the house. So this was a new addition that was added in 2017, uh, 20, 20 by 22 foot room. Uh, that was in 2017. By November of 2020, I had the NICAP CUFO files uh, from the Center for UFO Studies deposited here. I serve as their official archivist and just off camera here to my right. Yeah. Uh, I have 15 file cabinets uh, of the largest historical UFO case files in the world. That's awesome. Uh, the NICAP Kufos, and, and a smaller group called CSI New York, Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York, extremely rare material, and the original uh, files of Dr. Hynek from Project Blue Book. Uh, yeah. Some of those, uh, and I was—I just grabbed these right before we went on air. So oh, the, the, oh, these, wow. are, these are some of the original documents yeah. from 1949. And at the bottom here, you can see declassified. All these documents are declassified. But some of these are signed by the original base commanders. And this one here is uh, from the Air Force. And this one, just to give you an idea of the the antiquity of some of these things, August 17th, 1949, uh, Subject Project Grudge and Special Inquiry to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And we have, we just have hundreds of these files. Another one that I I just grabbed that I had sitting here, I was looking at yesterday, Uh, Department of the uh, Air Force Headquarters, United States Air Force, November 30th, 1949 subject. And I love this one, Chris, unconventional aircraft. (laughs) They they, they knew. (laughs) Not not flying disc, not flying saucer, but I love that unconventional aircraft. And it's just really a a treat to go through some of these. And some of these are not uh, online. There's a uh, uh, kind of, a, I think, a misnomer that everything, all of this has been digitized and online. About 50% of the history that we have, much of it resides here, uh, has not been digitized yet. And you can see behind me one of my yeah. high-speed scanners. We have two high-speed scanners, a microfilm scanner, a slide scanner, and uh, right behind my cameras here, I have two reel-to-reel players, two uh, cassette players, two VHS players all routed to two dedicated computer systems for digitizing. So we create MP3s, MP4s, PDFs, JPEGs of all of this material. And the goal ultimately is to share this with a a worldwide community. Uh, I believe in preserving the integrity of the original documents, but I also want to make sure that they're digitized, A, for preservation. God forbid if something happens to the originals, but also Afford this information to the worldwide community. Let everyone have access to this material because I don't have any answers, but maybe someone out there looking at this data may come to some answers or some conclusions that lead to answers.
0: Right. Like looking at that it kind of reminds me of like an old baseball card, like looking at an old Mickey Mantle card or something. It's val- exactly. valuable. So you know?
1: For any collector out there or, or historian, whatever your ilk, whether it's UFOs or or sports memorabilia, uh, there's just something about holding the originals that I find. I, I'm kind of sentimental. As a historian, I'm kind of sentimental. I like to have elements. And speaking of that, um, not only do we have uh, actual documents and audio recordings, which from an informational standpoint is important, but I've been able to acquire artifacts from Air Force Project Blue Book. Uh, I have some of the original Blue Book material from Lieutenant Carmen Morano, who was one of the last staff members with Project Blue Book. When Blue Book shut down, he took all his material home and boxed it up. Fast forward about 30, 40, 50 years later, and we now uh, recently discovered boxes of this material that had been sitting in storage. And there's a whole story behind that, which I won't go into detail on at this point. But it was interesting that the stuff had been like a time capsule, boxed up and stored away. And then now we have access to all these original case files, which is a nice supplement here to the heineck right. material. And then Colonel Coleman, uh, Colonel William Coleman, who passed away a number of years ago, he was one of the public information officers for Blue Book in the 1950s. Uh, through his estate, I was able to purchase his officer's caps, which have his name on the inside. That's and dope. <laughs> so that's, that, you know, just these beautiful display pieces that we could have on display as educational, uh, you know, elements to uh, supplement the data. And then my pride and joy. Back in 1953 is when the CIA got involved with the Robertson panel after the D.C. flyovers in July of 52. Uh, I have the original military attache case with his name in, in Boston gold, uh, Dewey Fournay, Major Dewey Fournay, who was the Pentagon liaison officer for Captain Edward J. Rupelt, who at the time was running Project Blue Book. And I have letters and correspondence covering about 10, 10, 20 years Between him and an an Arkansas UFO researcher named Bill Pitts, I acquired Bill Pitts's collection and as a result acquired that. And we have uh, written documentation from Dewey stating that is a military attache case I took to the January 1953 Robertson panel.
0: That's awesome. And all these
1: and all these items have energy to them. But I'm
0: pretty sure when you touch them, you can get you you it, it kind of transports you back to the to that it, time, you know. It,
1: do, it does, Chris. Absolutely. And the one thing that I love to do more than anything is beyond doing podcasts like this and and lecturing across the country to various UFO groups, I love engaging with the general public. I've done a number of lectures since living here in Albuquerque over the last ten years. Uh, at local libraries. Uh, I actually had a a gentleman's club at one of the local churches invite me over. Many of the uh, audience members were retired military uh, individuals and scientists. And I love engaging with those audiences because we know a lot about the history. A lot of these people know nothing of the history. And so it's really great. And what I try to do to your point, Chris, not only bring in the information that I can talk about, but here's the original front page newspaper headline from 1952. Here's some of the original government documents relating to these sightings I just told you about. It just makes it more real.
0: Right. What I don't understand, David, and this really, and it's bothered me for many years, and it's bothered a lot of people that are into the subject, or just in general, just things that go on around the world. Sure. Why it takes an individual like yourself to come out with this information when we know the government has this information. (laughs) And if they really wanted to, like, Get, gain the people's trust they would work with individuals like yourself and collaborate but
1: it's, it just doesn't happen they feel well, like what are they holding back it, it doesn't happen Why? but it doesn't happen historically but i think we're at a a tipping point Relate. i'm really glad you brought this point up chris um i have had some friends that are on the hill capitol hill and that know people uh i don't know important people but i know people that know important people as i like to say <laughs> So, you know, important people then (laughs) (laughs) somewhat like, yeah, twice removed, I guess you could say. Um, But I've heard hints uh, from these individuals that uh, they are wanting to start looking at the history. And I don't think it's idle rumor, because if you've seen the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023, the draft that we've seen, uh, hopefully Biden will be signing that into law here in the next few weeks. Um, Once that happens, Uh, there are provisions in there for them to start looking at the history of the phenomenon going back, I believe, to January 47. And they cite all of these different sources, of course, starting with official sources. But in addition to that, it says or other uh, groups or, or agencies that have obtained information through Freedom of Information Act. And we have tons of documentation here. Uh, from a researcher named Robert Todd, who was very prolific in the 1970s, Mr. Barry Greenwood, one of the the, the colleagues that I work with very closely, uh, he has tons of uh, Freedom of Information Act documents. Long before John Greenwald was even born, uh, they these guys were doing that work. And now it's great to see someone like John Greenwald taking yep. it really to the next level. I mean, all of these people are important links in this chain. Awesome. So, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to your
0: your dad, Norman Marlar. Yeah. Um, you know, RIP, I know he, he recently passed away. And then la- when was, when, when did he pass? Like uh, uh,
1: it, early two thousands? He had passed. Yeah, okay. yeah.
0: It seems like yesterday in some respects. Yeah. Everybody needs a, a a role model. I know he was a huge role model. What was, he, was he just only a fan of the, of the topic? Did he do any research
1: himself? I just want to kind of no, give was him a never, shout out. So to speak. he was, no, I really appreciate that, Chris, because yeah. I did have a very close bond with my father. We were good friends as well as father and son. And, uh, Luckily, um, before he started having, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, he actually went on some UFO investigations with me in the early days. I I cherish those memories now. Um, but he, um, he was a prolific reader. I mean, he read almost everything, but he did have kind of a penchant for UFO paranormal with, I think UFO probably at the top of the list. He, He was interested in ghosts and other paranormal things, but I think UFOs was kind of at the top. And in large part due to, I think, the, the Piedmont, Missouri uh, activity that we talked about. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he was a prolific uh, reader, never got involved actively until, like I said, in 1990, I joined MUFON, and, and he joined MUFON at that time as well. And so there for a very short period of time, we, we were able to kind of do some investigations. I wish he could have lived to see where we're at now with, with this and where we're taking it. Obviously, the information I shared with you before the show uh, where we're taking it now to a whole new level.
0: Yeah. You guys must've been a great tag
1: team group. He was a great guy. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, he inspired and instilled in me to be open-minded, but be skeptical. And I always try to walk that tight rope. Uh, I think you find people in this field, Chris, I think you and I could probably think of personal friends they lean one way or the other. They're either too skeptical where they don't even look at the data and they're just arbitrarily assigning explanations. But equally so, if you believe everything, then you're in fantasy world. I mean, people lie, people fabricate, people exaggerate. And you just can't take testimony at face value. You've got to try to corroborate that information. And I appreciate your your kind shout out about my methodology when it comes to historical research. Right. I don't go down the rabbit hole of conspiracies unless there's credible evidence to suggest there's a conspiracy. And as I always like to say, I've had some friends that were really uh, on the conspiratorial end. Just because conspiracies exist does not mean everything is a conspiracy. And so, you know, you have to be judicious. And uh, the same with UFO sightings. Uh, Admittedly, most UFO sightings can be explained uh, in conventional terms. In my experience as an investigator, and investigators that are, are you know, watching and listening to this, uh, they've dealt with the people that report Venus as a UFO, that report uh, a commercial aircraft or military exercise or military flares as UFOs. But despite that, you know, you really get into some interesting cases uh, once you get kind of past all that noise, and there are some extremely incredible cases, and even going back to the 1950s there's kind of a uh, a misnomer that Hynek in his later years finally came around with the UFO subject, that he went in as a skeptic. I have his personal files here, and it's really uh, interesting, and it really gives you insights into the man and his thinking. As early as the early to mid-50s, he was taking issue with some of the official Air Force explanations. And, and Chris... Heineck was always known for using red felt marker or pen to make his comments on these files. So they always jump out at you when you're looking at these. And in many cases, they may have listed uh, something as plasma or they may have ball lightning. And you'll see where Heineck crossed that out. And underneath, in in uppercase letters, wrote unidentified and then underlined it three times. And sometimes you'll see little marginalia. He would always abbreviate Air Force. He would he would often write, and I've seen this on a number of files, why didn't AF investigators interview the other witnesses? Why didn't AF investigators obtain the radar data that was in this case? So you see in even the early mid-50s where he was having major issues with the Air Force. And so rather than later in life suddenly having this epiphany, sometimes people uh, say with the Socorro, New Mexico incident in April 64. It was more like a dimmer switch. His erosion was gradually, you know, his skepticism was gradually eroding as time went on, and it was more of a cumulative effect as he started realizing there are some quality cases in the data.
0: Yeah, he 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 didn't want to be like uh, he didn't want other people's opinions to infect him. So so no, and, and,
1: and I and I give him credit because to me that's the definition of a true scientist. <clears throat> exactly. He went in skeptical, as you should. If you're making extraordinary claims, you better have evidence and data to back that up. He went in as a true skeptic, as a true scientist. But as a true scientist, he was willing to concede that there appears to be a genuine phenomenon here, whatever it is. And so, you know, to me, that's the definition of a scientist. He goes where the data takes him. Right. Yeah, when when when
0: I get interviewed for like my experiences, I'm very careful with what I say. I don't state the def- I try not to state definitives. Right. Like like if I don't I, I won't say I see a craft, I'll explain what I saw. Right. Because if I say I see a craft, that means I saw something that was physical. Exactly. And that's wrong. To me, that's wrong. That's misinformation. And there's just too much of that. No, we we need to be very,
1: very careful in our statements because, uh, you know, people rightly or wrongly may dissect those statements later and say, well, you really can't say that. And certainly I probably made misstatements over the, over the years as well. I mean, mistakes, uh, you know, it's, it's the intention, but to your point, you know, in my research, in my historical research over the years and looking at the history, uh, I don't care if people believe in UFOs. I just had the Albuquerque Journal here doing a story about three days ago. And they said, so you're not really out to make people believe. I said, no. I said, if you want to believe something, go to church. I said, you know, beliefs relegated to religion as far as I'm concerned. I said, I'm not interested in if, and I say, I have people come up to me and say, oh, I hear you're interested in UFOs. I don't believe in UFOs. And I look at them and I just say, well, I don't care what you believe in. That's your right. Um, But I'm more interested in looking at documented uh, cases, reports, and trying to see if there's patterns in the data. And the one thing that I do try to do, which unfortunately, I think many researchers don't uh, in the past as well as today, they don't cite their resources. When I went to college, it was Research 101. You you quote something, you cite the source. So audience people, audience members can go and fact check for themselves.
0: You're right, 100%. So let's get kind of partially into your book because I think what we're going to talk about sure. deals with some of what you've researched and mostly what what's in your book but your book is named Triangle UFO. So of all the shapes, saucer, tic-tac, yeah. you know, cigar shaped, vimanas, you know, um why triangles. What great what what's qu- the what stood out about that that got your your attention?
1: No, great question. As I mentioned earlier, I got involved in 1990 and there were Two or three really hot topics for those that remember uh, being in the field, if they were here in the 1990s. Uh, it was like December 89, January 90. Gulf Breeze, Florida, with all of their sightings, was a hot topic at that time. Bob Lazar, Area 51, that was really coming out at that point. You know, it just kind of, the, the news had broke. George Knapp had got that information out there. That was a really hot topic. And in addition to those two, the third hot topic was, what are these triangles that they're seeing in Belgium? And so that was uh, three of the things. And I tended, I was obviously following all the stories, but the one that really uh, compelled me was the fact that you had a uh, gendarmerie police in Belgium. You had military describing these eyewitness sightings of these large triangular platforms. And I always like to call uh, these triangles, Chris, unambiguous. It's one thing to see a light in the sky zipping around. That could be a firefly. It could be anything. Uh, it's another to have someone describing a 300 foot triangle hovering 500 feet above their head completely silent with superstructure on the underside large lights at the corners um and so they just intrigued me i mean this is to me this was like a whole other category of ufo and much like most people at that time i thought it was something new and so i was following the belgian uh developments as they occurred from roughly 89 to 91 And collecting information on that. And then, uh, as many people know, we started having reports of triangles in the United States and other countries, and I was collecting those reports. And then we come up to uh, the year 2000, uh, just after uh, Y2K, January 1st, 2000, uh, in southern Illinois, January 5th. uh, I was the Illinois state director at the time we had the very dramatic sighting of uh, a triangle uh, witnessed and reported by multiple uh, police precincts that neighbored each other. And they literally were observing this triangle. They were in radio contact. We have the radio dispatch recordings uh, as Sh- part of Shiloh, right? Shiloh was one. Yes. Of them. Uh, well, it started in uh, Highland, Illinois. It then moved to Summerfield, uh, very close to Lebanon, then it went to Shiloh, right near Scott Air Force Base. Then it went from Shiloh to Milstott. Millstot, we had witnesses in Dupo, although it doesn't appear to have gone towards Dupo. They saw it more at a distance. And so those were the primary witnesses. And then about a year later, another uh, police officer, uh, Mark Lopeno in O'Fallon, Illinois, came forward stating that, yes, he also saw it. And then in years later, we also had a secondary and tertiary witnesses that came forward saying that, that they saw the object. And so what was fascinating about this was we had uh, high caliber witnesses, police officers uh, willing to come forward. We had the uh, dispatch radio recordings, and we literally could plot having met with the officers. We we were able to plot where they were, where they saw the object, and we were able to establish a very firm flight pattern of this object. It's not often you have that many data points where you can literally track a UFO and the path that it flew. And what I was struck with, Chris, is as I'm sitting there interviewing some of these police officers, they're starting to sketch a triangle. They're starting to describe the silent flight, the low altitude flight. They're starting to describe the lighting characteristics. And you couldn't be struck with the fact that these officers are describing the same, if not similar object as what the (laughs) gendarmes reported 10 years prior. And these guys weren't into UFOs. They weren't into the UFO circuit. And it's like, how can you not be struck by the parallels between these two these two cases? And so after that, after the subsequent media coverage, because as you mentioned, I, I've done some documentaries where we discussed this case, um, once that interest, had, the, the media interest had started to wane, uh, coupled with the fact that I was continuing to gather historical data, I realized very quickly that I had a lot of historical data relating to not only contemporary cases, but historical triangle cases. That, in addition to the fact that going on the internet, I I, I was seeing all of these repeated comments. Well, these triangles must be military because they're new to the UFO phenomenon. And for those that have read my book, you know what I'm referencing here, I've got news clippings from 1960 describing a flying triangle with lights that, at each that,
0: point. That's what, that was going to be one of my questions, is what is the earliest historical recording of a triangular craft?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the earliest one was like 1882. There was a uh, a reference in Scientific American to astronomers in Connecticut that saw two black triangular notches moving across the lunar surface. Now- Admittedly, not a lot of detail in the report. Hard to corroborate. Uh, I always like to say, really, starting in the nineteen forties is when you have more more data that you can corroborate and correlate with each other. Uh, the nineteen fifties, I would say, we had some very detailed reports. Hazleton, Pennsylvania, uh, in the nineteen fifties, fifty seven, I believe, there was a a series of triangular UFOs that were reported. And as I mentioned, they described black triangle lights at each point the ability for these things to make flat turns. I mean, not just triangles, Chris, but triangles with similar lights, similar flight characteristics. And just recently, uh, I think since since you and I last spoke uh, over the last two years, having the ability to have unrestricted access to the NICAP-KUFOs files, I was uh, struck by a uh, British UFO researcher that made the comment that Well, these triangles really didn't appear until 1977. And that just happened to coincide with the movie Star Wars, with the implication he made that people saw the Star Destroyer in Star Wars, and that was a cultural uh, influence to make people then think that they were seeing triangles. I thought it was ridiculous. I thoroughly disagree with that. And uh, as a result of that, though, it emboldened me. Here I have this historical data set. No one has ever gone through these historic case files before, looking specifically for triangle cases. So I took it upon myself during COVID lockdown to take that time having these files right here. I went from 1947 to 1977, because that's when Star Wars came out, went through all of the hundreds, if not thousands of case files here, news clippings. I mean, this is what I did during COVID lockdown. Uh, And uh, it afforded me the opportunity to find 100, at least 102 additional triangle cases and uh for those that are interested in that research uh if they go to my website the full video of the the lecture that i did this year i traveled the country did about eight lectures as well as nova scotia uh, up in canada Uh, i presented this material for the first time and these are case files from the historic nicap case file collection that have never seen the light of day the general public has never seen some of these so it was a real treat to describe these but also share some of the witness sketches uh, that were provided by these witnesses and so that's available on my website under the video section and for those that are interested but that that was my latest research and data that i put out this year
0: okay so so the characteristics you've mentioned multiple times black triangles typically black why not you know silver like saucers like or other colors
1: why black So Black is the prominent color, and again, we may have to delineate to some degree the descriptions as far as current versus historic. Many of the historic ones do describe a metal or silver color to the actual body of the the craft, if I can call them that. Um, Some of these, even including modern reports, describe the object as glowing orange or red, and we have a number of those where... There are no lights on the object, but the entire thing just has this glow of a certain color, orange, red, typically. And so we have a number of those. The large size is something that we have, although we do have smaller triangles that have been reported over the decades. Uh, Lighting characteristics. um, Some of these things are completely devoid of lights. They're literally just a dark triangle moving through the sky and witnesses, and Chris, you've probably heard similar descriptions, People say, the only reason I knew it was there is I could see it blocking out the stars as it was moving overhead. There was clearly- yes, a I haven't, I haven't experienced something similar to that, so. There you go. So uh, so we have that as a characteristic. Um, we also have, uh, it, I have primary and secondary characteristics. Most of these things are completely silent, but there is a subset of reports where if people are close enough, if the wind's blowing the right way uh, and their their acuity of their hearing is good enough, Some people describe a a very low frequency humming or buzzing sound. And I think one of the best uh, analogies witnesses have used, they said, it's almost like you're standing next to an electrical transformer, that kind of humming or buzzing sound. Um, But that's one of the characteristics. Another one, there's two really that I'd like to talk about. People say, well, these triangles could be military today. I can see that as far as what modern technology is, I don't know. I'm not privy to classified uh, aerospace uh, projects, so I don't know what state-of-the-art technology is as far as aircraft. But two of the things that just defy explanation from aerodynamics uh, are the two characteristics of the fact that many of these triangles fly with the flat side as the leading edge. In other words, you have this this blunt object moving through the air with the point trailing behind. Yeah, that's weird. I've even talked to some, some aerospace experts and they say, yeah, that's about as aerodynamic as a brick. (laughs) So what is that about? That certainly defies. I mean, I can understand a triangle moving with the point forward, much like the B2 or the F-117A stealth fighter, but to have a flat sided object moving through the air that has not only width and height, Mm -hmm. but, but depth to it. How is this thing moving through the air? Another characteristic that seems to defy conventional, aerodynamic principles, some of these objects are described as having girders, superstructure, pipes on the underside, Uh, something that's not smooth and sleek, as we would think that we'd want to design for something moving through the atmosphere. And so those are two characteristics that are just very bizarre. Uh, I had a report from uh, the UK from a retired uh, police officer over there, and he said he was coming home late night from a uh, rock concert that he and his wife had attended, and they were driving through the Midlands of England. And he said, out of the fog, this, this object came piercing through. He goes, at first, I thought it was a blimp or, or an aircraft, but it was this huge triangle. And on the underside, and he had a beautiful sketch of this. He he described these the lattice work of these girders that were seen on the underside. And in some of the reports, we have uh, accounts, as he did, of these large picture windows that were along the side. And he could actually see figures moving. No way. <laughs> and he's, and he, he was very practical. I mean, as bizarre as the, the report sounds, he said, David, I'm not here to say those were aliens. I'm not here to say those were humans. All I'm telling you is there were humanoid figures that I could see the d- dark silhouette of with this white light as a backlighting behind them. And they were moving. Some were walking, some were standing, some were like moving like this. He said, I, I, was it military? I don't know. Were those human, human people aboard? I don't know. Was it alien? I don't know. He said, but as soon as this object came into view it moved over the County road and then disappeared into the fog. And uh, he goes, I don't know what to make of it. And that's, that's, I think one of the things that we need to dispel also is that people say, well, these people see these UFOs or UAPs and they say they're aliens. Most of the witnesses I've talked to over the years, Chris, just simply say, I don't know what I saw. They don't describe, it's usually the media that ascribes UFO, alien spacecraft uh, to some of these witness reports. Most of the witnesses just say, look, Dave, I was a pilot in the Air Force. I know what aircraft look like. I know what military flares look like. I know what refueling operations look like. I don't know what the hell I saw. And so most of the people are coming to us for answers. And unfortunately, I have none. I have lots of information, but I don't have any definitive answers.
0: Right. But I mean, if you did have, you'd, you'd release it, obviously. But you just don't want to uh, taint the the topic anymore. Then, not, then... not at all.
1: Not at all. And in absence of answers, I, I do want to interject this. I always forget to bring this up when I do interviews. Uh, so I'm really glad we have this opportunity. One of the things that has been personally rewarding for me as a researcher, just as well as a human, uh, is the fact that Uh, Many of these witnesses uh, that I've spoken to either in person or via Skype uh, or Zoom or over the phone, uh, many of them have said, you know, I know you can't provide me with any answers, but you've provided validation for me. People that read my book, I was not, I just, my idea was to get the information out there, Chris. What I was not expecting, and the first person, her name was Judy, and uh, she's from out east. uh, She reached out to me. She was the first reader that reached out to me and we had a phone conversation and she was on the verge of tears. And I didn't realize that the book would resonate with people on such a personal level, emotional level like this. And she said, I just want to let you know, I got your book. And she goes, I was riveted by reading these other accounts. I had a signing in the 1980s with a a woman. We were both picking up our kids from karate class uh, in this little remote, uh, like, uh, dojo or whatever that they had there. And, uh, she said, we both saw this triangle and over the years I would tell my husband, I would tell my family, I'd mention it to my coworkers and they would either laugh or make fun of me or just be just generally dismissive because they just, whatever, I can't relate to that. She said, then I saw your book and I, she goes, I read your book and I shoved it in their faces. And I said, look, I'm not the only one that's seen these things. So she said, and this is the word I've heard more, more often uh, from witnesses, you've given me personal validation. I knew I knew what I saw, but now I can show these people that, look, other people have seen what I've reported.
0: Right, right. I know this is kind of off topic, but I mean, I used yeah. to, I wrote for 20 years for a music magazine. I was a freelance journalist. Sure. And one thing that I realized when I interviewed artists is that they a lot of times don't realize how much their art impacts other people. Like that yeah. may be not they may, that may not be their their Motivating. their thing their motivation right. or their thing initially they just want to do art what what comes from them but it does impact other people and that's great that you're able to do that for for for
1: others and I can't tell you I mean I've had you know more than a few of those people come forward and talk to me over the years and it's just I did not expect the material to impact them on such a personal level like that. And, uh, you know, some of these witnesses, they've had very close encounters for (laughs) not to use the cliche. And some of these witnesses break down when they start recounting and telling me about the experience that it was just so uh, impactful. And, you know, a a number of witnesses have told me this object was so low. It was so big. And the only thought that my husband and I or my wife and I had was, is this thing going to fall on us? Which I thought was a very logical. Right. Nice. Because they told me every aircraft I know makes some type of noise, even a blimp makes some type of humming noise with the propellers, etc. And they said it was completely silent. It was 500 feet over us. It was immense, and we got this feeling of intimidation. Like, is this thing just going to come crashing down on us? And so it's these are very emotional experiences in some cases with these triangles. And um, another characteristic that I think is interesting too. Uh, that I found is many of these reports, and even the new data sets that I looked at, looking at 47 to 77, some of these reports describe objects coming out of the triangles and going back into the triangles. And there was a case from the 1960s where they described just that. And even the gendarmes in Belgium described this red light that would detach, fly around, and then go back to the triangle. And uh, another very unusual characteristic. We talked about the flat side of the triangle. Many of these historic cases describe rectangular UFOs in conjunction with the triangles. Right. And I have more than a few of those reports. So what's that about? And, yeah. and most of these take most of these uh, rectangles. If you can imagine a shoebox, that's about the the, the proper ratio as far as height, length, width, etc. But they're like a flying shoebox in the air. And I I've, I've found a number of those reports that correlate with sightings of triangles. In one case uh, in, in England, in the 1980s, I believe it was 1983 uh, a couple driving saw a rectangular object and moments later, just a minute or two later, they saw a triangle flying. Mm. And so what's the relationship there? Is there a relationship there? But I have more than a few of those accounts. And so, you know, as you dive into the data, Chris, and I think you know this all too well, as your audience, you go into it with questions. You come out with more questions. I agree. Yes. And, and, and then I, uh, when it comes to it's like characters, it's, it's the questions that fuel us, though. I just wanted to add that right. it's those questions that continue to fuel us because I'm curious by nature and I want to know. And so, to me, I, in some cases, it's it's a it's a brick wall. People hit that and they just get disillusioned and they burn out and they walk away from the UFO subject. To me, it's like throwing kerosene on the fire. It just fuels my interest and curiosity even more. So, so, so,
0: <laughs> so, is it safe to say you kind of almost don't want all the answers to come out?
1: Well, I, I do want answers. Yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I think some people like UFOs for the mystery of it, right. and certainly I love a mystery. But I, I would love, and I don't think we probably will in our lifetimes. I would love to at least find uh, insights into the phenomenon because I want to be realistic, I'm, I don't think I'm going to find, or any of my colleagues are going to find the answers. I do think that we can try to find insights, uh, probably through looking at pattern recognition with the data, that could lead to trends, and maybe later researchers, 40, 50, 60 years from now, may look at those trends that we identified, and those trends will help them with new information and insights, maybe eventually arrive at some answers.
0: All right, awesome. Awesome. So let's get into like some of the stuff that you have done research on, and if, yeah. and, and please let me know if any of these were triangular, sure. even though like I I don't think they were because there's not enough information. Like one of one of one of the things that you have uh, researched is the Battle of LA in 1942. Can you I give us a brief area. description and what what you found out about
1: that? Absolutely, February 25th, 1942, in the early morning hours, in and around the Los Angeles area. Uh, there were at least one, if not more, unidentified aerial objects that flew over the greater Los Angeles area. Now, we have to concede that this was about, you know, month, month and a half after the attack on Pearl Harbor. At that time, everyone assumed it was not a matter of if, but when were the Japanese going to finally cross the Pacific and do a mainland attack on the United States, either ground or air attack. And so at this time, Throughout the Los Angeles area, in schoolyards, in in shopping uh, mall areas, they had gun emplacements, anti-aircraft guns set up in anticipation of Japanese aerial attack. And so we also had a huge military presence in that area in and around Hollywood, Los Angeles, et cetera. And on February 25th, and the skeptics never like to talk about this. They always like to just gloss it over and dismiss it all. This is the thing I think is very important. Uh, Around 2.25 a.m. on February 25th, 1942, uh, three separate radar systems were tracking an unknown inbound radar target for 120 miles coming across the Pacific. And basically, Chris, it was coming from a northwest trajectory. So coming from the northwest heading to the southeast in in the direction of Los Angeles. And they tracked this for 120 miles. We even know the name of one of the radar operators. And this is through the government documents. And uh, I, I have to give a plug to my colleague, Barry Greenwood. In the 1970s, he was the one that filed the FOIA request that gave us about an inch thick stack of government documents that really tell the story of what transpired on this morning. And so as the object came in, the uh, gun emplacements were put on green status alert, which means they could fire on any target that they saw. And so as the this object came in, Uh, Based on all the available data that I've been able to gather through the government documents, but also original front page news headlines, in fact, directly above my head, you can't see it way back. There is an original photo from February 25th, 1942 of this anomalous object with the original news teletype, which I acquired uh, through a collector. Um, And this object came in over the Los Angeles area, moved down uh, to the south, and then moved out over Long Beach in California, and then disappeared. The entire time it was doing this though, it was being tracked with searchlights and being fired on uh, by 37 millimeter, 50 caliber and three inch, uh, any aircraft shells. Um, the object continued to move unscathed, disappeared. 20 minutes after the object disappeared and the firing stopped, the object or a similar object came in over Long Beach and essentially reversed direction. It reversed the same flight path and then disappeared uh, off the coast of California, uh, almost from the same direction it had originated. And so this object was photographed. We have one enigmatic photograph of something that appears to be in the convergence of these searchlights. Now, I'm here to tell you, if you've looked at that photo and people have tried to dissect it and analyze it, it's worthless from an evidentiary standpoint. And the reason I say that is, We've we've determined that the photograph that I have, the original one up here above me, right? I see it here yeah. with, the, with the <laughs> right spotlights there, on it. Yeah, with <laughs> spotlights on it. Uh, that was actually doctored. It was enhanced. Oh wow! You'd go into the newsprint, and this was a, a common technique they did uh, back in. They would sometimes enhance, darken, or lighten elements of a photograph so it translated better in newsprint. And I, I should add, I also have about fourteen to twenty original front page headlines from California and across the country. Some of those actually show the photo as well, that same photo. Uh, I love, again, when I lectured on the Battle of LA, Chris, I take the original newspapers and again, it makes it more real as we were discussing. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, when you can see the original papers people were reading with their cup of coffee the next morning. Um, but this uh, photograph was doctored and touched up. My friend and colleague, Ben Hansen. Uh, We were both working on a TV show together, UFOs Declassified, uh, that was sponsored by the Smithsonian Channel. Uh, Ben had gone to the LA Times uh, archives and met with Simon Elliott, who was the curator of their entire photo collection, which you can imagine tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, photos and negatives. And Ben was shown on that show the original negative. And so... From from an evidence standpoint, if we're gonna derive anything, it has to be from the original negative, not from a doctored photograph. Uh and so uh as a result of his visit there, Ben was able to acquire a high resolution scan of the original negative, which he was kind enough to share with me. I always I always give him a shout out for that. Mm. I really appreciate that. Shout and out so, ben Hanson. <laughs> yeah, Ben Ben's great. He's a great guy. And uh when you when you look at that original negative, and again, that's that's the most pure image that you can look at and study what you find is uh you don't see a saucer with a little dome on top as people have seen it's like oh it looks like a flying saucer little dome with a cupola yeah that's what i always thought it was when you look at the original negative and i've blown this up and done just simple contrast enhancement it's unmistakable for those that have seen the doctored photo if you remember there's these little white blobs Yeah, i always wonder what that was those are any aircraft explosions oh. taken captured at the moment. The photographer snapped the, the shutter on the camera. Those are blobs of light. Those are any aircraft explosions. When you look at the original negative, you see an ellipsoid or you know the, this kind of lenticular shaped object. But at the very center and top, you see two or three of these same light blobs that appear either on or in front of this ellipsoid. And so what you actually are seeing in the photograph, the doctored photograph, is a a light contrast enhanced version of an ellipsoid with two or three of these explosions. So those were two or three anti-aircraft explosions that was captured at the moment of the the, the shutter snapping because the, the light density and the shape and the size match these other explosions that are in the photograph. Uh, but when you when they doctored it, they kind of washed all that out and it all blends together. And so you see a flying saucer with a little dome that the dome is, in fact, two or three explosions that occurred at that split second when the shutter was snapped. Right. But putting that aside, you still have this ellipsoid shaped object that seems to be in this, the, the, the the convergence of those searchlights. And so what is that? People right. say it's a balloon. Well, it's an interesting balloon considering it came 120 miles off the coast, came down, did this uh, interesting maneuver over the greater Los Angeles area, disappeared, came back 20 minutes later, reversed that same pattern, and each time was fired on by over 1,240 rounds of anti aircraft fire. That's an incredible balloon.
0: Yeah. yeah well, it's not, a, you can, the thing is like a blimp or a balloon, the material, you, you, if you shoot rockets at it, It's not dropping at freefall speed. It's going to, and they're going to capture pictures of
1: of it as it's dropping or whatever. Well, and and it's interesting too, Chris, because during this incident, there was, believe it or not, a weather balloon shot down in one of the newspaper accounts I found where they found a weather balloon that they had shot at it and it came down, but that doesn't explain when it came down, this object was still flying around in the air. So what was this? (laughs) And so, uh, you know, again, you got to kind of sort out the details and the devil is in the details. What's interesting, though, is I think this really demonstrates the importance of bringing all this historical data together, because I had newspaper clippings, the press releases, etc. What I didn't have were the government documents. And then that's when I uh, met with Barry Greenwood and found out about the government documents. So when you have the government documents. You have the newspaper accounts. We also have the CBS radio recording, which uh, maybe some of your audience have heard, it's on the internet out there. Uh, Byron Palmer did a radio broadcast. His testimony correlates quite well with certain elements of the government documents and the newspaper accounts. And I helped use that to synthesize all this material to come together. Now, it should be stated though, that there were many other lights that were reported at the time. Maybe there were more unusual objects or lights Mm -hmm. in the air but I've tried to take a conservative approach as I often do with these cases. I like to simply say this, was there some hysteria? Yes, probably so. People thought the Japanese were attacking and the skeptics use that as a blanket explanation to just simply discard the whole case. I don't think you can do that. I always like to say, I focused on the hypothesis that we had one solitary unknown object. And I do that for a very practical reason. Putting all eyewitness testimony aside, We have photographic evidence of one object. You only see one object in that photo. We have radar evidence of one object moving 120 miles inbound. So based on the objective data that we have, photograph and radar, I I work under the working hypothesis it was a solitary, mysterious object. Man, that's crazy. And it's, I mean, one is better than none. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all we need is one. on We often say that, Chris. Of all the the thousands of case files sitting here in books and journals and material, if we have one genuine UFO that defies conventional explanation, that seems to demonstrate technologies or flight characteristics we can't explain, all you need is one valid UFO report to constitute a genuine mystery. And of course, we have volumes of material that I think suggest that. All right, sir. So let's get into this other
0: one. This one's very intriguing to me. The incidents in Farmington, New Mexico. Now I know uh, Roswell happened in
1: '47. Yes, does this predate Roswell or is this after Roswell? This is just after Roswell by a few years, um, and I'm I'm glad you're bringing this up. <clears throat> I literally just had three days ago uh, an interview with the Farmington Daily Times here oh, in that's, New, that's New Mexico. Crazy. So I was just talking to one of their reporters, and back in March of 1950, uh, in March March 18th, to be specific. They ran this headline, uh, you know, Flying Saucer Armada Jolts Farmington. And so uh, what occurred was, and this is, I think, and I'm not being um, loose with my statements. I think this is one of the most definitive UFO cases in history. Wow. We had two and a half days, broad daylight sightings of structured vehicles, numbering from single to dozens to hundreds that were witnessed by approximately four to 5,000 people. I mean, as far yeah. as a case goes, I mean, you know, how does it get any better than that? And uh, a, a summary of it, basically, uh, March 16th, uh, the morning of March 16th, 1950 in Farmington. And for those that aren't familiar where Farmington's located, it's up in the Four Corners region of New Mexico, the far north northwest corner of the state. And um, at that time, uh, In the early morning hours, uh, they first started seeing objects that were flying over Farmington. Uh, At the Main Street location, there was a Chevrolet garage. It was called the Perry Smoke Garage. Uh, We had witnesses that were congregating in front of the gas pumps. And I have some great vintage photos of of the, the gas station as it looked in March 1950. And you see the gas pumps there. One of the witnesses who I actually got to interview before he died just this year, He literally passed away in April of this year. Uh, I interviewed him about five, six years ago. Uh, He was a a teenager working in the parts department. And you see the door where his little parts department used to be in one of the historic photos I have. And he says, you see the, the, the gas pumps right there? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm working in the parts department. And I go, I look out and there's three or four or five people standing at the gas pumps and they're all doing this, pointing up, looking up. And much like you or I, Chris, uh, if we were walking down the street and we saw 10 people looking up, I think the natural thing is just to look up and see what they're, they're looking at, our Not curiosity right. again. And so he walks out there and he looks up and he sees approximately 10 to 12 uh, grayish silver blobs. He, he didn't say that they looked like saucers, but they were these blobs and they were moving together. He said a lot of people later said, well, it was maybe trash or leaves blowing around in the wind. He goes, whatever these things were, they were moving in a solid formation. And all of the witnesses in Farmington said it was not a V formation, not like a military echelon formation. Right. Uh, some investigators, including myself, even asked that question. They said, no, it wasn't a V formation. It wasn't like ducks or geese, but they were definitely grouped and all moving together like that. And he watched it until this formation dis- disappeared behind the trees. Well, that really consisted of the first day of sightings, uh, a number of witnesses, probably a dozen or so witnesses, but it was really a prelude for things to come. The next day uh, was Friday, March 17th. And on this particular day, all hell broke loose in, in Farmington, as well as other parts of New Mexico, which is very important. I, you know, my investigation was like this. I was like a microscope focused on Farmington. <laughs> right, right, but then right. I started finding reports 20 miles away, 50 miles right. away, 100 miles away. And uh, in the you know what that
0: kind of reminds me of? I don't mean to cut you off. And that, I, I want
1: to eventually get into
0: it. Yeah, it's the Phoenix Lights incident because oh, it's sure. the same thing. It absolutely. was even more broader.
1: But go ahead. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, I no, not up. not at all. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, but on on Friday, March 17th, which happened to be St. Patrick's Day, and we'll come back to that. Uh, in the early morning hours, many people saw multiple overflights of objects, low altitude as well as high altitude. People that saw these objects flying at low altitude in the, the newspapers from the time, uh, as well as uh, interviews that I've acquired through other sources, they described these things as looking like a dinner plate and they even went on to state, even down to the bottom ring. So imagine a circular object and there's a little ring in the center of that. That's the level of detail that they could see as these objects were flying over. Now, it should be mentioned, all of these two and a half days, uh, the weather conditions were clear skies, with a light scattering of cirrus clouds. So broad daylight, clear skies for the most part, and people are seeing structured formations of objects, single dozens to hundreds, uh, moving across the sky. Uh, Many of these individuals uh, worked at the newspaper. They worked at the bank. They were business leaders at the time, uh, pillars of the community. Uh, There were housewives that were going out to put laundry on the clothesline, looking up and seeing these things. Um, But this was playing out uh, over time. One of the intriguing characteristics that I found was most of these objects were described as light gray or silver in nature. And again, typically moving in formation with each other. Some of them were described as having a tussle in the sky or a dogfight. Those were the actual words used in the newspapers of the time and witness testimony. Uh, But despite all of these silver gray objects, a number of witnesses, and not just in Farmington, this is where we talk about other sightings across the state, people describe a formation of silver gray objects moving with a red leader that seemed to be escorting them. A very detailed characteristic. And we had a sighting in the early morning hours in Farmington at the same time, on the other end of the state, on the east end of the state, in a a town called Tucumcari, New Mexico, witnesses described, and this was reported by the editor of the newspaper there, Richard Everett, described seeing a formation of silvery gray objects with a red leader that seemed to be escorting them. And I found other reports of this in and around that general time frame across the country. And I found that to just be a very specific detailed description that was being reported by other individuals. And, uh, and even it, here in Albuquerque at Kirtland Air Force Base, while some of these sightings were playing out, and this was around three o'clock now, because remember, this was a, throughout the day, multiple sightings were occurring. It wasn't just in the morning. It wasn't just in the early afternoon. It wasn't just in the late afternoon sighting. And we have a timeline of all of these occurrences Uh, There was a sighting by multiple military personnel standing on the tarmac at Kirtland Air Force Base here in Albuquerque, and they described two objects that seemed to be tumbling through the air that disappeared behind the Sandia Mountains. And in addition to that, we had reports in Las Vegas, not Nevada, but New Mexico. We have a Las Vegas, New Mexico, uh, and they described it. And in fact, one of the headlines I have up here is an original Las Vegas daily optic report and the banner headline, two inch thick letters spaceships cause sensation. Wow, that's incredible. These were the types of uh, media accounts. I mean, they were covering this in detail. And long story short, uh, I moved here to Albuquerque in 2012. And I was actually going up to Farmington on business with my job at the time. And I thought, well, I'm not just going to sit in my hotel room after hours. I'm going to go to the local college. I'm going to go to microfilm. I'm going to start reaching out, asking questions. And so I'd work my day job and then I would do the UFO research in the evening. I, I always joke with friends and family. I say, I'm kind of like Batman. I'm Bruce Wayne during the day, but at night I'm, I'm fighting crime or in this case, investigating UFOs. But, but you don't take uh, off your glasses. That's the only That's right. right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I don't want to re- reveal my identity, uh, but uh, I was finding information. And then I, I come to talk to some local business leaders and they said, well, have you talked to Marlo Webb? My, my response was, who's Marla Webb? He goes, well, he was mentioned in the newspaper at that time. He was one of the witnesses. And uh, I, I come to not only meet Marla Webb, but I think we had a nice little friendship that we had developed. And uh, he actually owned several car dealerships. To this day, if you go to Farmington, you'll see Webb dealership, Webb Toyota, wow. Webb Chevrolet. He was a huge business leader. Uh, later in life he was actually the mayor of Farmington in the 1970s. He was a private pilot for decades. He owned a number of banks, a uh, very successful businessman. And uh, I wound up meeting with him later in his life, uh, you know, about five, six, seven years ago, and interviewed him in his office. then he invited me to his home. I did an audio interview with him. And then as you can appreciate, Chris, you build that relationship, that rapport, that that trust with witnesses. I finally said, you know Marlo, I said, I would love to get you on video uh, just to document your sighting and your testimony. And he was very kind to let me come into his home and uh, do a video interview, which, again, is, I think, great because, again, he passed away in April of this year. So uh, I kind of lost a friend as well as a UFO witness when he passed, but we have his testimony recorded. And in addition to him, through uh, uh, work with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, who have done investigation on the Aztec UFO crash, they put me in touch with a gentleman who was another witness who was alive, and uh, his name was Virgil Riggs. Virgil was a third grader in 1950, and he was going to school in Aztec, New Mexico, which is just up the road about 12 or 13 miles to the, the northeast of Farmington. And ironically enough, many of the reports describe some of these objects moving from the, uh, from the, the southwest to the northeast. And I was able to meet with Virgil and also get his video recorded testimony. He described seeing a formation of circular objects, white or or silverish. He said, imagine multiple double six dominoes lined up across the sky. And that's how they were moving very tight knit formation of these objects moving across the sky. And, uh, it's just amazing the amount of testimony, the number of witnesses, the number of objects over two and a half days. The Air Force investigated it. They had uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations come up here from Kirtland Air Force Base, which is District 17. And they went up uh, weeks later, not right away, but weeks later and interviewed some of the witnesses, including Marlo. Marlo was one that told me, yeah, they came up, they interviewed me. Um, and we had the documents in blue book files. You have to hunt for them but they were redacted. So in 2017, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request because the last request that was on file was 1985 to get these things declassified. They wouldn't release the information at that time. Access was restricted. So in 20, uh, uh, 2017, I filed a FOIA request and was able to obtain the original unredacted Air Force Office Special Investigations files, which really gave us insights into what I was looking for, additional witness names. Now they weren't blacked out. There they were for all to see. One of the names that was on there was a gentleman by the name of Hulon Pace. Uh, you have to admit, that's kind of an unusual name. It is, yeah. Stands out, Interesting. H u l o H-U-L-O- H u l o n Hulon Pace. The reason I mentioned that is just last year, I was sitting here in this room talking to my, my colleagues, Jan Aldridge and Barry Greenwood. And Barry said, you know, I'm looking for information on a case from the Yukon territory in October, 1950. He goes, do you think you could go through the files? I said, gentlemen, I'll put you on speakerphone. I'll go over and look through the files while we're talking. So just off camera here, I was down down the, my row of file cabinets that I have and I'm going through and I'm looking while I'm talking to Barry and Jan and going through October, 1950. And Chris, as I'm flipping through the pages, just at a glance, you know, trying to find this case file for Barry, I notice a, a name, Hulon Pace, and I froze. I'm like, Hulon Pace? There, there, there can't be another Hulon Pace out there. I can't be, right. not like John Smith. Right. So I pull a two, three, four, five pages out of this file. Now, mind you, October, 1950. I pull it out and I had goosebumps. This was an account of the Farmington incident that was misfiled under October, it described the Perry Smoke Chevrolet garage. It described he was standing there. He mentioned Marlo Webb as one of the witnesses that he knew that was there at the time, along with other witness names, which we never had as part of the historical record. Abe Huntsman was one of the names. And I can't remember the other gentleman's name right now. But these I found two names that we never had before as part of the historical record. Then I start looking through and he's describing in detail these objects having a tussle or dogfight describe the formation, all the characteristics that we just described. And then to my surprise, and Chris, believe it or not, despite the the sensational nature of this uh, case, we never had sketches of the objects, either in formation or individually. I flipped to the last two pages and there are sketches of what the solitary objects look like and what they look like as they were flying in formation. In fact, Hulon Pace even sketched, the city, the town with the Mesa. There's a Mesa that sits uh, off to the side of Farmington and that's where the local airport is. It's actually a landing strip on top of the Mesa. And he shows how the objects came in single file. They had a tussle or dogfight over the, the airport. And then he shows the direction that they departed. We never had visual representation of the objects or the flight patterns. And this is you know, 70 years, almost 70 years I- later. And here is a report that was misfiled in October of 1950. The only reason I found it was looking for a case file for Barry and seeing that name. And Chris, if anybody else saw Hulon Pace, it wouldn't register. The only reason I picked up on it was because I got the name through my my FOIA request. Yeah, because it's a very unusual name. But it demonstrates, it demonstrates, if I might just add in in closing, that this demonstrates that you never can really close a case. You never know when you're going to find other little elements or or aspects to add more color to understanding what, what took place. And lastly, I did tease your audience. I mentioned St. Patrick's day. The reason I said that was Dr. Donald Menzel, Harvard astronomer who was a huge debunker in the 1950s. He basically insinuated that what all these people saw was a skyhook Navy balloon that was launched at white sands It ascended to about 60,000 feet or greater and then ruptured, and people saw little bits of plastic floating down.
0: Yeah, whatever. And and
1: then he adds to that, as if that's not insane enough, uh, he adds to that. And it just so happened to be St. Patrick's Day.
0: Oh, so everybody was drunk.
1: Implying implying the entire city of our town of Farmington was drunk (laughs) at the time. And in closing, I did go to James McDonald's archive at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And went through his personal handwritten files, which was a real treat, and uh, found interviews that he had conducted. And I went there at the, at the suggestion of Stanton Friedman. I told Stan I was looking into the case. And he goes, you might want to look at Dr. James McDonald's notes. I think I think James looked into that case in the wow. 1960s. And so it was through Stanton Friedman's suggestion that I went down there. I found a lot of additional details that had never been made public before that correlated with some of the other data I had gathered And in the notes, though, and I love this, when you can debunk a debunker, uh, 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 James McDonald actually contacted someone with Office of Naval Research. And in his own personal notes, he has the date, the time, contacted Dembrowski. He didn't give the first name, just the last name. Contacted Dembrowski at ONR, Office of Naval Research. Dembrowski checked the Skyhook balloon launch logs there were no Skyhook balloons launched in New Mexico in the month of March. The the, the closest one was launched, I think you said a month earlier, that launched in Minnesota and terminated in Michigan. Wow. So, yeah, so there's the proof. No, no evidence of a balloon launch at, right. at uh, White Sands. So, you know, we, we debunked the debunkers. Right.
0: That's awesome. So the sketches, yeah. very, they sound very intriguing. Are, are, are they or will they be available at any point?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I may have added them to my uh, a case file. I, I did do a write-up on this whole case. And I think I did include those on my website. If you go uh, okay. there and under research, I think you'll find those. And if not, I can certainly supply a copy for you. I'm, I'm
0: going to look at those. I, I love looking at those, uh, the sketches, because you get and a lot it, more yeah, detail than than verbal sometimes.
1: Despite all the witnesses and all this time, these are the only ones we have. And they've, they've been sitting misfiled for decades <laughs> in, in a file cabinet. Right. So you, you were sitting on a gold mine. You didn't even know. So, so what else is out here that we're still right. waiting to discover? That, that's well, what that's what the see.
0: thing. Have, have you looked through all of that? Or is that stuff
1: that you, you've obtained, but you just haven't had the time really to look through each I one am, painstakingly? I am receiving tons of material and we'll talk about, you know, right. what I'm having to do as a result of that. Right. right. Um, but I'm receiving so much material. And again, I, contrary to public opinion, people think I do this for a living. I work full time. I have a family, a wife and two daughters. And I do this in my spare time. And I devote tons of time as you can imagine of my spare time to it. Um, but the materials coming in so fast, I'm trying to also field data requests, people reaching out saying, do you have a file on this case? So I, I have to pull the file, look for it, scan it, email it to people, uh, doing interviews, lectures, etc., cetera. And also scanning the files. We're currently in the process, I'll be working this week in my spare time Continuing to scan, uh, I believe we're in the na- 1967 now. Scanning the NICAP Kufos case file collection, and I even have my daughters now helping me prep the files. They're 12 and 14, and they're sitting there making extra money uh, from dad. And they're <laughs> destapling all the, all the files, taking all the rusted paper clips out, regluing many of the news clippings that are glued onto sheets of paper, regluing those because they they've delaminated over time and right. are just falling off. They're doing all the prep work, which really takes the most the most of the time. They've done two file cabinet drawers. Now, I have two file cabinet drawers that I can run through our two high-speed scanners we have and start getting that digitized. I then send that to Barry Greenwood, who cleans it up. If there's like uh, dirt marks or scratches or folds, he'll go in and actually just kind of clean that up and remove that, right. make, make the document center, orient the documents much better, enhance or darken if they need to be and then saves those as case files. And eventually we're gonna have all of this data available online once we're complete. That's awesome.
0: So what you're doing for your daughters is what essentially what your dad did for you. You're kind of passing that on.
1: Yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way, Chris, but it's, kind of, it's becoming a family legacy. That's, that's awesome.
0: Time. Okay, so let's go into another New Mexico
1: case, uh, the sure. Hobbs
0: incident of uh, 1964.
1: Yeah, here, here's another one. I mean, in this, uh, God, I, I could go off on so many different tangents on this one. This is a case much like Farmington, and that's what I look for, Chris. I, I look for cases that personally pique my curiosity because it seems like there might be an element of credibility. But I also look for cases like that that I feel really haven't had the light of day, really haven't had their day in court. Um, you know, I think as UFO uh, enthusiasts, we we beat to death certain cases, but to the exclusion of ignoring some of these other cases that are out there. And so this was one that why aren't people talking about this? And this was one that I originally found as the cover story in one of the APRO bulletins, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, back in the 60s. Um, When I acquired some of these in the 1990s, I I remember seeing this headline, uh, you know, uh, basically UFO burns a boy in Hobbes. And so I remember reading this and didn't think much of it because I lived in St. Louis. What am I going to do with that case? But once I started kind of winding down the Farmington investigation, I started looking, well, what other cases would I like to look at? And I stumbled across this one. Um, This involved an incident of an eight-year-old boy being severely burned by a a UFO, as crazy as that sounds. And uh, this occurred in Hobbs, New Mexico. Now, we just talked about Farmington being in the far northwest corner. This is tucked down in the far southeast corner. For those that have been to Roswell, New Mexico, if you go further to the Southeast, almost to the Texas border, that's where Hobbs is located, kind of tucked away in the far corner. And um, a fairly small community, especially back in the 1960s, it was, it was relatively small. But there was a family that owned a series of businesses, one of which was a laundromat. And uh, their grandson, who was the really the focus of this whole case, he was playing in the back lot behind the laundromat. His grandmother was standing in the back door there was an off-duty nurse doing her laundry in the front of the laundromat, and as you can imagine, the grandmother was doing kind of the tennis court thing, looking this way, talking to the nurse, looking over this way, telling you know her grandson, no, don't play there, sit over there, and she was just kind of having you know her attention divided between the nurse up front and her grandson in the back lot. Well, uh, as as was described at the time, and as I found out later, which we'll discuss in my investigation. The young boy was playing, and suddenly his attention was drawn to this black top shaped object that suddenly came into view and was hovering over a building. And to help orient your audience, there was the laundromat, the back lot behind it, a small alley, and then there was a small uh, one story series of like real cheap apartment buildings, but just one story, like one room apartments, essentially, back in the 1960s. He's playing. And he sees this black top shaped object just drift over and stop over this little one floor apartment building, not very far from him. And he looks up and he stands up and he's looking at it. And uh, I eventually tracked the witness down, which we'll talk about. And so I was able to really get a lot of detail Uh, at the time, as well as my interview. He described that when he saw it, he felt like he was looking at it, but he felt like it was looking at him. And just instinctively, he kind of stepped to the left. He said, I felt like I was almost like in the gun side of this thing. And I just instinctively just felt like I needed to move. He stepped to the left. The object moved to the left and mimicked his behavior. He then stepped back to the right. The object stepped back to the right. So it was mimicking his behavior. There was a concrete block there in the middle of the lot. And he described that he then crouched down and he's watching this thing. And it just hovered there. He then... stood up and stepped to the right, and it moved to the right, again, mimicking his behavior. And then before he knew it, this object came right at him. He said, like a bullet, it just moved towards me. And he said, "Uh, all I can tell you is instinctively, for those that are you know hearing this, he told me, imagine you're crossing a crosswalk and maybe you didn't look left and right. And suddenly your attention's drawn to a car that's coming at you at high speed. It was one of those things where you don't think, you just react. And he goes, I just went like this. He goes, I thought the object was going to come through me. And in fact, James McDonald interviewed him four years after the event. And I've heard the recordings. And he describes the same thing to James McDonald. He said, I instinctively just braced because I thought this thing was going to go through me. It didn't go through him. Rather, it moved right above his head. At this point, as it made that acceleration, it made a whooshing sound. This diverted the grandmother's attention, who was standing about 15 feet from him, to turn and look at her grandson because she was talking to the nurse up front. She heard a whooshing sound, which diverted her attention. When she looked at her grandson, she saw this black top-shaped object point at the bottom, rounded at the top, completely black, suddenly belch out fire over her grandson. The fire covered him from head to toe, yet only... He was only burned from the jawline up, which is unusual. There's very weird elements to this story. Uh, It also belched out black smoke in the process. The grandmother described to James McDonald that there were burners on the underside of this thing. And that's very important because we're going to talk about a correlation with something else that happened in the weeks after this. Um, But the object belched fire down. It went from head to toe very rapidly and then stopped at which point the object then made another whooshing sound and disappeared out of their line of sight just moved off obviously the grandmother's attention was fixed on her grandson at this point the grandson at the his face burned his hair was on fire he instinctively was trying to run towards his grandmother towards the laundromat because he knew she had been there prior to this episode transpiring she immediately grabbed him And he remembers her hitting his head. She was trying to put the fire out. Most of his hair was burned off of his head. Um, His face immediately began to swell to the point where you couldn't even see his eyes. They were like slits. His face had swollen so much. At this moment, the grandfather, uh, who also owned the laundromat with his grandmother, pulled up in the car and she screamed, Charles has been burned. We need to get him to the hospital. So they immediately loaded him into the car, drove him to the other end of town, which wasn't very far because the hospital is still there to this day. And I've been to the scene of where this transpired. So I know distance and locations. Um, They took him to the hospital and there just happened to be a burn specialist from uh, Lubbock there that would be there about every month or twice a month. Uh, His name was Dr. Badger. And this is all documented in the newspapers of the time, which is amazing. We're not just relying on the testimony of this boy or the family. Um, The Hobbs police were involved in the investigation. The newspapers of the time talk about, as Charles told me personally, the FBI was involved in the investigation. So we have contemporaneous reporting documenting that the event happened and there was government and, and local law enforcement interest in this. It mentioned the doctor, and mentioned the hospital that he was taken to, and uh, he was treated for second degree burns. Charles tells me he had third degree burns as well as as did the mother, but all all of the official accounts say second degree burns. But uh, his, not to be too graphic, but I think it's important to illustrate, most of his hair was burned off. Obviously, most of the severe burns were on the top of the head because that's where the fire came down. Reports describe his ears as looking like ground hamburger. They were gnarled and red. His lips were extremely burned, inflamed and red. Again, his eyes were just slits because his face had swelled so bad. And he had blisters all over his face and and head. But the burns stopped right here at the jawline. So I don't know if it was like a flash fire that just came down. And he wasn't burned here because it just didn't have time. It just simply hit here but didn't engulf anything. He did have a black sooty deposit on his face, as well as his neck and his t-shirt. And uh, as is no surprise uh, when the FBI came in, and this is again, documented in the newspapers, they interviewed the family, especially the grandmother, because she was witness to the fact of this occurring. They interviewed Charles, they collected his t-shirt and the grandmother's apron or blouse that she was wearing because he made direct contact with her. I guess, to do chemical analysis. Um, The FBI never, ever gave the family any feedback or follow-up as to the lab results, which was really an issue for the mother when she was talking to James McDonald. She goes, they never, ever came back to us. And the grandmother, (laughs) jokingly enough, even made the comment. She goes, you know what? I never did get my dress back. (laughs) So, uh, but these were not the people to come up with a UFO story, just to make up stories. They were well-established business owners. They owned the laundromat and several other businesses. And they were devout Pentecostals in the 1960s, 1964. I would argue this is not the, 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 the stereotypical uh, individual or profile for someone that would hoax a UFO report. I, and, I, um, and they labored under the idea for decades afterwards that it wasn't a UFO. They didn't believe in UFOs. They actually, and I heard this from Charles himself, they felt it was something military that went off course from white sands and inadvertently burned him. They never thought UFOs and aliens until I tracked Charles down. Now, mind you, they did interviews for the first week or two. And it's interesting uh, because you can actually see the headlines change day by day. Uh, Boy burned my mysterious object. Black thing burns boy in the face. And then it says, boy recovering at local hospital. Uh, boy now responding you know, to this or that and describing uh, just every day that he's doing a little bit better. Boy released from hospital will be convalescing in home for the next month. So you get to see the progression of the story in the local okay. newspaper, which as a historian, it's great. We're not taking someone's word decades later. Here's the contemporaneous reporting of the time. And what's interesting about this though is his sighting, occurred on Tuesday, June 2nd, 1964, and the reason I say the day is because three weeks later to the day, uh, we had, towards the end of the month, a a businessman driving home late at night at one in the morning uh, in northeast Georgia. His name was Buford Parham, and he was driving home and encountered a black top-shaped object belching flame out the bottom, and it circled his vehicle it made a whooshing sound, and he described the dimensions as, as very similar. This object was relatively small. Uh, it was only two to three feet wide and about five to six feet tall. And so this kind of correlated with Buford Parm's description of the object. And the object burned his, his arm slightly because I we it's not clearly described, but it was Georgia in June in the 60s. I would argue he probably didn't have air conditioning in his car probably had the driver's side down and his arm out. It, they really never, that's my that's my inference. I, I can't say that for certain, but I think that was what happened because that was the only part that was burned yeah. on him. But he felt intense heat and even described like a terrible odor as well. Well, I found this report in some of my Blue Book documentation that I have, and I found it in our extensive news clipping collection as I was looking in that general time frame for anything. Uh, this led to me eventually tracking down the daughter of the gentleman. And I'm still in contact with her today. Her, her her father died about two years after the event, nothing related to the the UFO incident. It was a heart attack. So we don't think it was related in any way, but, uh, she's still alive as is his widow, her mom. And she talked to her mom. Her mom doesn't want to talk to me directly about it, but I'm getting it through the daughter, but they were very frustrated with the air force project blue books attitude towards their father, her husband, um, in just dismissing the case altogether. And they still stand by the fact that he came home that night shaken, shook up and resolute in the fact that he had this experience. Uh, and they, they really were not happy with the air force project blue book attitude towards him. And so, uh, I'm in touch with her still to this day, as I mentioned, I hope to do an on-camera interview. Uh, and what's interesting about that though, was this was in Northeast Georgia. Uh, Every Tuesday after that, for about two or three weeks, people within an 85 mile radius in northeast Georgia were describing a black, flying, top-shaped object of similar dimension, similar description. Many of whom were describing fire belching out the bottom, and it was always on Tuesdays. To the point where I even found contemporaneous newspaper accounts where they said locals were gathering up in the in the countryside. To, to have a top watch is what it's called. Not sky watch, okay. but a top watch uh, to look for this flying object. And they even noted at the time they recognized that this object always appeared to be uh, showing up on Tuesdays, right. just like Hobbes. This continued off and on. And I even found as late as September, just recently, about a month and a half ago, I found another well, it's still news going account. on. Still going on not every Tuesday. It started uh, to uh, wane uh, towards the end of July, August, not much going on, but we had yet another report in September that I just discovered and no surprise. I looked at the date and it was a Tuesday. Why are all these things happening on Tuesday? I have no answer for you, but it was. And, an this, and this, latest rep- this latest report, where was this at? Georgia? It, was, it was still in Georgia. Yeah. Okay. With the exception of the Hobbs, New Mexico case, right. which was the first one, as far as I could tell, All of these were within an 85-mile radius in Northeast Georgia. That's crazy.
0: Uh, So, okay, so you
1: you have this object that's trying to do harm to people. Well, you know, you're always cautious to read intent into any of these, right, Chris? I mean, because we're looking at the behaviors. We really don't know what's going on, who's in control of this, why are they doing it? But as I've told audiences when I've lectured on this uh, across the country, this particular case – it's hard not to think that this thing was done by intent. When you see that the boy steps to the left and it steps to the left, he moves to the right, it moves to the right, then he moves to the right yet again, and it mimics his behavior and then makes a beeline path right for him. It's hard not to suggest that this thing by intent burned him. I mean, it. You know, again, we have to be very cautious trying to interpret behaviors, but I find that behavior very strange. It was almost like a guided missile is the only thing, you know, it locked on. um, Yeah, it's
0: kind of like that, too. And I kind of don't want to get into this because we can go into another rabbit hole. (laughs) But, I mean, I've had an incident before where I'm coming home and I get to my house and I see a wasp. Sure. Sure. And I moved one direction and the wasp moves in the other direction because I, I'm in its sight. And it's like, what are you? And I'm going to bite the hell out of you. Absolutely. So it kind of comes off like almost organic in a way like it's uh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. It and uh, and wow. so that that's a unique subset of reports. And then I started again, like all these cases, Chris, I start like this and then they kind of open up and expand my search. I found in the Blue Book files just about 80 miles uh, to the northeast of Hobbs, New Mexico, in 1952. Now, this is going back some years, admittedly. Uh, I found a Blue Book case that was labeled as unidentified. They didn't explain it away. And I found Hynek's personal file on this case, as well as the, the regular file that the general public sees. Uh, two witnesses described seeing two objects. They described them as top shaped objects that were spinning as these witnesses described belching either smoke or steam out the bottom and this was 1952 wow that's crazy so what other cases are out there this is not a, t- a typical type of ufo we hear about but are there other cases out there and obviously as i go through the files i keep my eyes open for any
0: well i'm pretty sure there's a lot of more cases out there, and they're going to come out eventually yeah um So let's fast forward a little bit. This one's a little kind of kind of personal to me. Okay, so I I was born and raised in New York City um, and I left New York in 89. But in the mid 80s, I was uh, because my parents had divorced and I was staying with my dad at one time. And Mm -hmm. I remember uh, seeing something in the sky. It was a daytime sighting of this. uh, I guess you could call it now they call it Tic Tac, but it was it was a cigar shaped black, like super black object flying Mm -hmm. in the sky. Right. And that that started like my interest in, in the topic of, of of UFOs. But I never knew that. Uh, New York state and city had a history.
1: Oh, yeah. And it wasn't
0: until years later when I found out about the Hudson
1: Valley UFO. So can yeah. we talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, r- roughly starting in 1983 to 1986 and, and Linda Zimmerman, who, who lives out in that area still, she's been documenting cases even beyond that time frame. Um, she uh, has done a remarkable job cataloging the 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 his, history and the historical reports out there. But primarily from 83 to 86, we had this incredible uh, UFO flap uh, over the Westchester area of New York, as well as parts of Connecticut. And right. uh, people were describing not flying saucers, but they were describing either chevron-shaped objects, boomerang-shaped objects, and Triangular shaped objects. This this factored into my into my book and into my research on triangles. Um, these reports were coming in uh, from solitary witnesses, but in one particular instance, the entire Taconic Parkway shut down. Imagine an interstate and everybody stops their cars and gets out and looks up, and they saw this huge chevron shaped object with lights. And remember, Chris, we talked about this earlier: superstructure, girders, beams oh, wow. okay. on the underside. So again this factors into the triangular ufo category somewhat with the characteristics um either silent or slight humming sound associated with the these objects that were being reported and the sightings were prolific i mean we're talking hundreds if not thousands of eyewitnesses now adding some confusion to the mix uh there's an area called the stormville airport where later it was found private pilots were flying cessna airplanes in formation and using non-regulation lighting that they could turn off and on at times, and they were orchestrating or hoaxing some of the UFO sightings. Now, again, the skeptics- Is that confirmed? That's confirmed, although we never got the names of any of the pilots, uh, which I think this should have been an FAA investigation because they were violating FAA regulations, and- Personnel at the Stormville Airport stated that they knew the pilots were doing it. So I don't know why there wasn't more of an investigation to force these guys to acknowledge which pilots were engaged in this activity. But it just adds a a layer of confusion and complexity, much like uh, you mentioned the Phoenix lights, Chris. Um, The Phoenix lights, object was seen, lights were seen. Only about an hour or so later were jets up dropping flares over the Barry Goldwater test range. Uh, In both cases, one can make an argument. It's almost like someone was trying to create plausible deniability to just dismiss the whole thing. And maybe they were. But the point is, uh, unfortunately, mixed in what I think what were credible sightings, you had these individuals that were orchestrating. Now, some of the witnesses stated quite clearly, I saw the UFO. And weeks later, I saw the airplanes and there was no comparison. I knew those were airplanes flying in formation. I could hear them. The lighting characteristics were different. The size of the object or perceived object in the case of these planes flying in formation, uh, they could discern and clearly delineate the two. Uh, you know, So uh, it just unfortunately adds that, it muddies the water, adds that layer of complexity when you're trying to investigate these reports. But there were hundreds of reports that were filed. And uh, I have tons of original news clippings and uh, material regarding this. In fact, Years later, I had an investigator, uh, his name's Mark, I, I won't use his last name, I don't know if he wants me throwing his last name out there, but Mark was very kind to send me a binder, he was one of the investigators, and he sent me a binder of all his original notes on his investigations, he goes, I I, I quit UFOs years ago, I've had it sitting in my closet, I, I heard about your book, he goes, I think you should have this, so just awesome. one, of many, one of the many collections that I receive, you know, and gather, and then centralize, and then, you know, you're able to cross correlate that data with the other information here. And that's awesome. So going fast forwarding a little bit more,
0: another one that really intrigued me. um, And now I'm finding out information
1: about it is the Belgium wave. Can, Can you get into that? Yeah, November 29th, 1989 is really, again, we talk about, as we mentioned earlier, Chris, with Piedmont, it starts with one sighting and then it just goes from there.
0: Right. November 29th,
1: 1989 was, was the uh, pivotal moment that really launched the uh, Belgian wave. Uh, there were uh, two police officers, uh, Heinrich uh, Nico and uh, another officer by the name of Von Montague, who were driving near the village of Upon in Belgium, near the German border. And They noticed these bright lights moving over the field that was illuminating this entire countryside and as they drove closer they realized that these bright lights were on the points of a huge triangular platform that they could clearly see the lights were shining down the lights were then shining off the ground back up to where they could see the underbelly of this object and there was a red light in the center and it was hovering there silently they they called dispatch to see if there were any military aircraft they contacted local military bases They said negative. They watched this object for uh, uh, quite a long period of time until it slowly started moving out over the countryside. And they continued to try to follow it as best they could on the county roads. Uh, They then uh, observed it over uh, an area uh, known as the La Galepe Dam. And they were watching watching it hover over the dam. As they're observing it, they noticed that another triangle came up over a hill. Identical. To the other one. And this, ironically enough, matches one of the characteristics I talk about in my book, where quite often these things are seen in pairs or in multiple formations of triangles. And they're observing this triangle, they're watching that triangle, they're seeing beams of light coming down, red light coming out of this object. But long story short, in other neighboring villages, other uh, individuals, other uh, police officers were in radio contact with each other, describing that they were seeing the triangle. And so uh, and it's interesting because the parallels between that and the January 5th, 2000 case in Southern Illinois, I described police officers in neighboring municipalities in radio contact describing a triangle. So there's so many interesting parallels between January 5th, 2000 and uh, the uh, Belgian uh, sightings in November, November 29th, 1989. But as a result of that, that started kind of the interest. It started the media interest. More and more reports of these triangular UFOs were appearing. Ironically enough, what makes that period unique is not just the, the what was being reported, but the fact the Belgian Air Force was starting to investigate it and publicly acknowledge it. They weren't covering it up like in the United States. They weren't keeping it on the down low, so to speak. They were holding press conferences in 1990, 1991. There was a sighting by off-duty police officers. Uh, it was a, a one particular police officer who was having a party, and him and his guests saw these triangular lights moving around in the sky. They contacted local authorities, and they checked, and there were four separate NATO tracking stations tracking an unknown target at that same location. Based on the justification of that, they launched two F6, F, F, uh, F-16 jet interceptors, to try to identify these objects. The one F 16 uh, was piloted by Eves Mealsberg, who's only done, I believe, two interviews and documentaries, one in, vo- in a documentary that I also participated right. in. And uh, he described that he attempted multiple lock ons with his radar. Every time he would lock on, the object would pull away at incredible speed and either increase or decrease at incredible altitudes in, in-, in the blink of an eye. And so, They were never able to truly see the object other than locking on with radar. But the Belgian Air Force held a press conference. They released the radar data and they openly talked about it. And and, uh, Colonel de Brouwer, later General de Brouwer with the Belgian Air Force, acknowledged that we have things in our airspace that we can't identify. This was unheard of. A military authority of any country acknowledging there are UFOs. We don't know what they are. And we can't describe, you know, the characteristics how they fly. This this was unprecedented, and and I would argue, Chris, going back to your earlier question about, you know, why triangles. I think that really uh, captured my interest. I mean, here here are military authorities acknowledging that these triangles are in their airspace and they don't know what they are. All right, so the Belgium wave that that topic itself is very interesting.
0: When I first or saw, uh, saw it or heard about it. It was in uh, like we talked about some shows from back in the days, UFO Files, I think. Sure. And they had they had a picture. And then years later, when I finally got the Internet, I I wound up looking the the topic up and there was two pictures and they looked almost similar. One was looked like it was like right directly underneath this object. But it was like, you know, you can see the the object itself. You can see like the shape and everything. And then another one looked like some motion blur in a way. Right, But there's there's a little controversy with that, correct?
1: Yeah, there is. And uh, in fact, I have a slide set over here of those uh, actual photos uh, from the organization SoBEPS, which was the organization that looked at the, uh, the, the UFO situation at that time. And now they're called COBEPS. They've reformulated yes, under yes. a different name. Uh, and ironically enough, uh, uh, several years ago, I believe it was in 2014 or 15, I had the pleasure of having Patrick Feren here uh, from Belgium. He was traveling the country and he was in charge of the Sobeps group. He was the lead, one of the lead investigators on this. And I had the, uh, capability we had corresponded, but we finally met in person. we were able to sit and compare notes on the triangles, which was really interesting. So I've had direct uh, contact with, with Sobeps and, and with Patrick. Um, yes, uh, based on what Patrick told me, because he knew the photographer personally, he had direct interaction. I did not. I defer to Patrick's judgment on that. And it was determined that they were ultimately a hoax. Although I've heard recently, just in the last several months, that the photographer, I believe, is now coming forward saying, no, they're actually real. And either he was told to say that they were fake or there was some disinformation campaign. I don't know. I I lump it under under the category highly controversial at this point. Uh, everybody wants the smoking gun. Everyone wants that perfect UFO photo that, you know, can't be, uh, explained away. Um, but I don't need photographs necessarily to, to justify the reports. And again, uh, I, I don't mean to take issue with the skeptics, but sometimes they paint with a broad brush. I saw many statements at the time when that photo that you mentioned, you know, came forward and then was found to be a hoax. People said, well, see, the, the the slide is a hoax therefore all the sightings are a hoax well that's a gross extrapolation just because someone took a slide right. during a time frame and it proves to be a hoax it, it cannot discount all the credible eyewitness testimony from other people i think that's just a gross extrapolation
0: so yes yeah, it's, it's like saying you know one ufo hoax means there's no such thing as ufos at all, all well i think
1: I, I think it was george knapp who, who put it best and i always remember this he said just because a twenty dollar bill is counterfeit does not mean all twenty dollar bills are sure, counterfeit. Exactly. So, so the the Belgian wave, do you consider that legit? I do. Oh. I find it. I, I I it's not that I believe everyone. I cannot summarily disbelieve all the testimony, and that's 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 I think where I stand with the UFO subject in general. It's not not that you believe everything; it's just you summarily disbelieve certain things all right so this one i'm it, it, we're
0: gonna fast forward again i'm trying to go in order i had like i have notes just to let you know look this is Absolutely. how I, I do my thing i have notes just just so i'm a, I'm, I'm on task but I, actually, and I, actually
1: actually chris i hate yeah. to do this but this has never happened i think my wife is locked out of the house she just texted yeah. me saying she's locked out so can That's i fine. can i step aside for just one second Yeah, of
0: course man i'll, I'll be right. right back yeah yeah, yeah 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 i'll pause i'll pause all right everybody we're back on um so th- this next topic that I wanted to talk about is, uh, is another one that's personal to me, because like I had, uh, I joined the military in 98. I was mm-hmm. stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Vegas, and I had a, a few experiences there. But before that experience happened, I remember in 97 seeing in the in the newspaper about these triangle or one triangle craft over Phoenix
1: called the Phoenix Lights. Can you can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. March 13th, 1997. I mean, that was a dramatic uh, night of sightings. And I always like to reframe the discussion, though, when I talk about this case, uh, Chris, because we call it the Phoenix Lights. And I was just talking to one of the MUFON state directors there in Arizona. We were discussing this. To call it the Phoenix Lights, I think, belittles the nature of the case. It really should be called the Arizona Chevron, because it wasn't just lights that were observed. It was a structured vehicle based on some of the eyewitness testimony, and it wasn't just in phoenix it literally traversed the northwest to the southeast the entire state which just happened to intersect the flight path right. over phoenix so well, the, well when i first heard about it it was the phoenix lights but then like oh, yeah. little
0: by little information was coming out and from what i heard it started in cali yeah and made its way i think it e- even went through vegas
1: yes or, well in nevada and then in nevada then, yeah Arizona. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it even transcends uh, Arizona, the state of Arizona in that okay, sense. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. No, no, no. It's just, uh, but multiple witnesses, again, hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses uh, in, Vega, in uh, Nevada, as well as Arizona. Uh, obviously, the highest population density being the greater Phoenix area, though, where the majority of sightings occurred. And this was an array of lights in a V formation. It was essentially a, a Chevron People ask, well, is this a triangle? I said, well, it's triangular, but this case, and I've said this repeatedly, this case really is a, a, a case unto itself. I don't even know if we can put it in the triangular category because this object was, I believe, estimated to be about a, a mile to a mile and a half wide. Uh, I mean, this thing was just off the charts, uh, you know, and many witnesses observed it. Again, they described seeing objects or superstructure. Uh, And then the object, as I mentioned, moved from the northwest to the southeast. I believe the last sightings were around Tucson, uh, Arizona, before it finally disappeared. And shortly after this object had traversed the greater Phoenix area, uh, uh, there were some A-10 warthogs that had dropped uh, flares over the Barry goldwater test range. And much of what you see in the form of videos and such are, in fact, flares over the Barry goldwater test range again as we were talking about j- just because that people saw that it doesn't negate the earlier sightings right. that all these other people had is it was it true that there were multiple crafts seen yes uh, it, it, the thing that really garners most of the attention is this huge chevron but there were other reports of lights or objects that were also seen in and around phoenix uh arizona and uh my friend, Peter Davenport, the National UFO Reporting Center, received some of the initial calls, and he has some of those uh, very dramatic recordings. But uh, yeah, that was in 1997. and I always right. tell people, people say, well, if all these people saw it, why didn't we take pictures? It's like, we got to remember, I had a cell phone back in 97. It was very rudimentary. Uh, right. And I always say to this day, what we need is a Phoenix Lights type sighting in this day and age right. with the cell phones that we now have. Exactly. Exactly. Because I don't even think UFOs would be a question mark anymore if that were the right. case. Right. And and the face of
0: that, that whole incident, um, the person that I that I see a lot that talks about is Lynn
1: Katai. Yeah, she's she's yeah. the prominent researcher and investigator on that case. And uh uh I'd had some people say, Well, in your book, you really didn't talk about the Phoenix lights. I said, Well, at the at the beginning of the book, I said, I'm not gonna focus on cases that have already been written about and investigated. I want right. to share these rare there. cases. And uh, Dr. Katai has done a, a tremendous job documenting and continuing to research and talk about that case. So I always defer people to her. I mean, how right, right. you know about the Phoenix? She was there.
0: <laughs> yeah. I apologize for bringing it up. It's just because it's a, it's a triangular craft.
1: No, not at all. I you mean, it, it, it's one of yeah. the more yeah. significant UFO sightings, if not the most significant sighting in recent years. And uh, like I said, I just I've made made the comment many times. If we could have a sighting like that with all of us with our smartphones with high definition video cameras. Uh, I mean, this wouldn't even be, a it'd, be it'd be game over <laughs> game over. Yeah. But yes. So in her
0: research, you know, again, not to, not to infringe her research into this, into this interview, but she said that these things were ha- this, the, this wasn't the only incident it was happening years before
1: she, she has, uh, you know, uh, proof pictures and all that. But, well, uh, and again, ahead, you know, demonstrating history, you know, there's, there's sometimes histories of sightings in certain areas and, uh, absolutely and you know we need to look at the totality of information that's out there when we're trying to study this rather than focus maybe just on one case so so i began by saying that it started like in cali and it worked it with
0: its way through so in 98 when i joined um i was a security force, so i was a cop i was stationed in a, at a place called area two it was a weapon storage area and mm-hmm. we, we housed nukes there yeah so nukes right, right. so um one evening, it was uh me and a partner, and then we met up with another group. So it was two other airmen. So altogether, it was four airmen. Okay, we saw a a, a series of triangular lights in the sky, mm-hmm. and I and uh, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for 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 the, what they describe, but it was a series of triangular lights. The the incident happened probably ten seconds, but behind that light, or maybe affixed to that light, I don't know, was a mass that blocked out the stars. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know why, but for some reason I feel like it's connected to the Phoenix lights.
1: It could be. And uh, you know the, the fact that you observed that where you did, uh, I, I think I may have alluded to this earlier and I've said this in lectures, I concede that some of the more modern triangles could be ours. Uh, we may be dealing with a mixture. Uh, certainly, right. it, it, we don't have to lump these into one category. Could some be someone else's technology and some of these triangles are ours? I think that's a distinct possibility right and and
0: and and i say and i say this like i think that there's some sort of path that goes from california through vegas and through arizona and it could be a connection militarily i don't know but yeah like like an air corridor essentially Yeah, like some sort of corridor that a path that they always follow sure you know for some reason i don't know yeah um the next one we kind of loosely talked about but I kind of want to get into a little bit more. And the reason why uh, is because my brother brought this up to me. He's a cop. Now he's been a cop for about seven, eight years. I'm I'm here in Florida. He just moved here to Florida. He's a cop out here, but he was a cop in Missouri. And oh. he remembers talking, he remembers talking to uh, a coworker, an older gentleman that saw the St. Clair triangle, what they call oh, the St. Yes. Clair triangle. Yes. 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 So the, the Southern Illinois. So, uh, you know, let, let's get into that a little bit. I know we talked about it, but I kind of yeah, want to bring absolutely. that back up because it's yeah. very important, I think.
1: Yeah, that that I believe the witness the witness he's referring to is uh, Tom Jensen, Uh and he observed uh the uh, or a triangle. I guess we should say we can't say definitively the same triangle, but a triangle. Uh, around the same time as the January fifth, 2000 case, and as I mentioned earlier, Chris, we were able to establish a pretty good flight pattern, Mm -hmm. at least during the time that the Illinois officers observed it. Now, could it have gone high altitude, gone over to Missouri, where this witness observed it? Possibly. Uh, Could it have been another triangle, as remember we talked about, with the Belgian uh, case? They saw two triangles at the same time, in the same vicinity, I have many reports of that where there's more than one triangle operating in an area at any given time. And so, yeah, uh, uh, Tom came forward. Uh, I found out about his testimony uh, some years later and, and incorporated it into my book as well. And so, uh, you know, again, we we can't be arrogant enough to think that, well, we investigated this case and we've got all the witnesses. It's like quite often with these cases, many years later, it's like, well, there was so much media coverage at the time. I didn't want to come forward. That's, but now that things have died down, I'll tell you about what right. I saw. And that was officer Mark Lopeno in O'Fallon. That's how he felt. It was, a, it was kind of a media circus. And I could see where that would deter people from wanting to kind of throw their name into the ring. Some people just don't want to be, you know, drawn into that. Right. What, what, why haven't we heard of a, of a landed triangular object? I'm asking myself that same question okay. of the, the hundreds or thousands of cases I have on file. Uh, because I received reports from all over the world, especially after I did the unidentified episode with Chris Mellon uh, for the History Channel. Um, I continue to receive reports. In none of the historical cases that I have, in none of the more current reports that I've received, I have not one report of a triangle being seen sitting on the ground. I do have some where they describe the object hovering about anywhere from 12 to 18 inches above the ground, but hovering, not making direct right. physical contact. Right. And that's a good good point you bring up, Chris, because I always talk about looking for patterns in the data, but equally important is to ask yourself, what don't we see in the data? And what we don't see is a landed triangle. Right.
0: Do, do you know of that picture, I don't know if it's legit or if it's a hoax, but supposedly... Um, not our navy, I don't think, but it was a navy that had this
1: triangular craft over the ocean, and you can see it kind of almost going into the water. Yes, yes, I think I know which one you're referencing. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't really speak to photographs. Right. I, I defer to the photographic experts to weigh in on that. That's outside my my lane. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I just wanted to know if you kind of knew anything about that. But yeah, I, I get
1: pho- I get photos and videos sent to me all the time, and I I don't mean to be rude, but I just tell oh, people. No. I can give you my opinion, but it's not a professional opinion. That's that's outside my lane. (laughs) Uh, What about Tinley Park? Do you know anything about the Tinley Park incident in 2004, 2006? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, My my dear friend, long-term friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Sam Maranto, who's taken over as Illinois State Director when I stepped down, he investigated that thoroughly. And these were multiple accounts of three orangish, amber, reddish lights that were seen moving in formation over Tinley Park, Orland Park, which are suburbs of Chicago, and multiple witnesses, multiple media coverage, and uh, much like the Phoenix Lights, unfortunately, though, we, we just don't have an answer as to what these things were. What was really uh, unique about that, though, because as we mentioned, Chris, the, you know, the Phoenix Lights happened in 97, this happened much later, and obviously there were more people now with smartphones, with cameras, and they were able to take video, they were able to take photographs, And I think Sam and his team in Illinois MUFON there have done a tremendous job still piecing together some of that information as it trickles in. And um, it was really interesting. I remember going up to Chicago uh, because I was still, I believe, a member at that time of MUFON when Sam had taken over. And myself, Sam, and Mark Rodiger from the Center for UFO Studies, we all got together and we had uh, my laptop projector. I had Google Earth pulled up and we had a huge projection screen and we were trying to plot the locations and times of all the witnesses. I was working the computer. Mark was kind of helping us navigate. And then Sam was reading off the descriptions of all the eyewitness testimony he had gathered, giving us the address and and time. And we were plotting that and zooming in on Google Earth, zooming out, and we were able to plot all this. And it was really, really great to use technology to kind of start just mapping all this out and really getting a visual of where all these sightings were happening and the times and uh, it was just, I just remember that as a real memorable event, kind of trying to piece all this disparate witness testimony together. Yeah, just having people help you, you can get those puzzle pieces together. And and I'm a visual, I'm a visual kind of guy too. I I love maps and I love plotting things that allows me to kind of get a mental framework of, okay, now I kind of see what took place. So, so this next incident, it's not a, Well, from what I
0: understand, it's not a triangular craft, but it happened around the same time as the Tinley incident. Mm -hmm.
1: That's the Chicago O'Hare incident. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. Again, Sam did the lion's share of work. I lived in southern Illinois at the time. So I was down near St. Louis. Uh, Sam lived up in the Chicago area. So he was, again, really the lead investigator on that for MUFON at the time. But uh, yeah, you had uh, I believe it was in November. You had this. flying saucer, I hate to use the term, but I think it describes it quite well. You had this flying saucer that appeared to be hovering over one of the terminals at O'Hare International Airport, and it was observed by ground personnel, observed by other witnesses, and then the object did a complete vertical ascent at high velocity and poked a hole in the cloud cover to the point where you could actually see blue sky at the top of this plume or this hole that was created. And um, ironically enough, the one thing I remember more than anything, Chris, is I I seem to always avoid any type of UFO activity. I was uh, flying on business at the time. I was in the exact same terminal the week before the air incident, the exact same terminal where that (laughs) took place. I forget where I was flying to in the Midwest. It was on one of my many business trips at the time. And I remember remarking to Peter Davenport, we were talking about at the National UFO Reporting Center. I said, Peter, Peter, my timing is terrible. I said, I was there at that same concourse literally the week before. It's like, it couldn't have happened then when I was there. It had to happen the week after. But it it really generated a lot of interest. And uh, uh, I think it was uh, uh, a reporter by the name of Hilkovich with the Chicago Times uh, ran a really good piece that I think garnered a lot of national and international credible attention to this particular incident and i found that to be almost as amazing as the sighting itself that the the local national and international media were covering it and not really poking fun at it and um, you know if we have an object of unknown origin that is operating directly above an international airport with some of the, the busiest air traffic in our nation i think we need to take that seriously right. uh, i don't care if you believe in ufo's but even if there's anything of substance to these these reports I think we need to take that seriously from an air traffic uh, safety standpoint.
0: Yeah, I'm, I know you can't answer this question, but I always wonder, like, what, what is it
1: doing there over an airport? You Who know? knows? I mean, you know, that that's always the question with some of these incidents. Why there? Why then? Why at that time? Yeah it's crazy. And probably when you were there, it, it probably was there, you just couldn't see it maybe. You probably just didn't notice it was well, there. Well, again, I was there the week <laughs> week before, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's it just really that that really frustrated me on a personal note, I have to tell you.
0: All right. So let's shift lanes here and then I'm going to end this soon cuz I know you 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 have things to do and sort sure. of why uh I wanted to get into like cuz we talk about the craft and you had talked about like the one incident where this couple sees this thing coming out of a cloud and there's a window and they see silhouettes of like these beings. Right. Do you have any information on what these being like are beings associated with any of these with the research that you've done?
1: Well, something I think that's good to bring up. And I appreciate the question. Um, a lot of people have asked me, Dave, in, in your lectures you've done, you know, over the last several years on the triangles, you've described some incredible sightings. Have you ever had any abduction experiences uh, or entity reports associated with any of these and my immediate response is no but i then qualify that by saying but you have to appreciate most of the reports that i have written about are derived from newspaper accounts and in the 1940s 50s 60s nobody was really talking abductions or aliens even in even in ufo circles some people Many researchers didn't want to go there. We can accept there's UFOs, but we're not going to talk about little people running around these craft. Um, So by virtue of the data sets I was looking at, I was only getting sighting reports. However, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've had many people contact me nationally and internationally with more recent sightings, and they have described uh, purported abduction experiences associated with triangular UFOs or missing time accounts associated with triangular UFOs. So, uh, that would be a whole other avenue to then get into is to look at the abduction accounts, entity reports associated with triangles. But I just haven't had the bandwidth to do that yet. Okay, so you believe that there
0: are aliens, correct?
1: Well, like I don't aliens? know if there's I don't know if there's aliens. The only thing I'm willing to concede is in looking at the preponderance of information regarding UFOs, there appears to be an objective reality behind some of these reports. I would be speculating as the day is long to right. say anything beyond that. All I'm saying is we don't have to know what it is, but I do believe there is something there that there is an it behind some of these things. Most of them can be explained away, as I mentioned, but I do believe that there is a subset of data that suggests we're dealing with an objective reality that we don't understand. And that's, that's about as far as I'm willing to go. I got terrestrial time travelers, interdimensional, all the above. I don't know okay
0: so we're so let's get back to the craft the craft itself and the different shapes of craft Mm -hmm. do you think that each shape has a purpose like maybe they like one's a scout craft and one's maybe a fighter craft do you think like
1: like yeah again prefacing sheer speculation on my part uh i've heard some people say Uh, And I think it's kind of rudimentary thinking, well, the greys fly the flying saucers and the reptilians fly the triangles. And I think that's just ridiculous. (laughs) To me, just using the only corollary we can, Chris, it's like, that's like saying only Catholics drive Fords. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I think exactly to your point. And again, I, I don't say this arbitrarily. I've said this having discussions with, you know, people in the military that have kind of thought about this. Um, I feel that if we can use the military, which you have background with, uh, as as an example, we don't build an aircraft and then arbitrarily say it's it's a bomber. You build an aircraft to be a bomber. You build specs that will allow it to be a bomber. Uh, In other words, they're purpose built. And I think the different types of objects being seen, if we can accept the reports at face value, exactly to your point, I think the designs, shapes and variances are dependent on what they're being used for. Uh, Chris Mellon has an interesting idea that perhaps these triangles are doing a mapping operation or scanning of the terrain of of the planet and saying that you have three uh, sensors or lights that could be scanning, creating triangulation, pinpoint accuracy and mapping something. I think that's a great idea. Maybe, Maybe that's why we have the triangles, but to your point, how does that explain the shoebox-shaped rectangular UFOs or the flying saucers or the orbs? Um, I think possibly, and again, uh, sheer speculation on my part, I think that the objects are designed to serve or fulfill a certain mission. So so the, essentially, they, they're they creating their own Google Earth. I, well, possibly, but I, I think it's one of the more logical explanations that we could kick out there as opposed to, well... Only this species flies this craft, this species flies that craft, because how does that explain, you know, multiple UFOs being seen at the same time, you know, unless it's like Star Trek, you know, United, United Federation of Planets. Right. Um, but we obviously we don't want to go too far into the realm of science fiction with our, our speculation. But these are, I think, valid questions we have to ask to your point, Chris. I mean, we can collect the data at some point. We have to speculate or at least go out on a limb and start trying to create a hypothesis that makes sense. And it may be proven wrong, but we, we do have to start trying to make sense of all this data that we have. Right. So, so to me, like paranormal
0: is an umbrella term. Like when people yeah, talk yeah. about paranormal, they usually refer to it more like ghosts and poltergeists, but I don't believe that's the case. I think paranormal has ufology, cryptozoology, you know, angels, spirits, demons, NDE, you know, cult. So in your research, have you run into situations where a person will say, I saw a triangular craft. Cause you have mentioned before somebody saw like a box craft and then a triangular craft. Yeah. Have you, I, I, I have little,
1: had- yeah. Go several accounts. of that. that. Yeah. Several so, accounts. Have you had
0: anybody that said that they saw, let's say a triangular craft and then they saw like a Sasquatch or had some sort uh, of poltergeist
1: activity? Well, not at the same time, but I have talked to people that have had sightings that subsequent to the sightings, Started having poltergeist activity, or started having prophetic dreams, or started having elements like you're describing. Uh, it's almost like a side effect of having the experience. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So, uh,
0: let's wrap this up a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a couple more questions, and then we'll get into your um, the National UFO Historical Records. We'll talk about that. But okay. do you foresee disclosure, like full disclosure, anytime in, in our lifetime?
1: Well. I would <laughs> prior to 2017, I would have said absolutely not uh, with what we've seen since 2017 with the New York Times article, the House hearings, the Pentagon UAP report. The fact that, as I alluded to earlier, the National Defense Authorization Act still has provisions related to investigating UFOs, UAPs. Um, I, you'll have to put me down as a firm, maybe. Okay. Uh, we've already, in my opinion, had disclosure with a lowercase d. They've acknowledged UFOs exist. I mean, we've had the House hearings. The Pentagon report acknowledges that whatever they are, whether it's Chinese drones, Russian drones or something else, they are acknowledging that there's a phenomenon. And I know for younger people that have gotten involved in the last few years on the subject or last 10 years, you need to go back to December 69 when Blue Book shut down. Almost every conclusion that they used to basically justify shutting the Air Force project down has been refuted by the Pentagon report. You know, the fact that UFOs do not constitute a threat to national security. Well, that was the impetus for ATIP. That was the impetus for the Pentagon report, acknowledging that these things could potentially uh, pose a threat to national security or air safety. So you look at that and you look at the conclusions with the Pentagon report, it refutes where we are. So I would argue we have we've done a 180 as far as the uh, official position on UFOs. The fundamental question is why and why now? That I think that I think is the big question Chris that's in the room that people don't want to address or fail to address why now is this happening I don't think the government is arbitrarily doing anything at any time there's always a reason so what is the reasoning behind now changing this this you know mindset of denial that the United States government doesn't investigate UFOs since project blue book shut down december 69 why now are they acknowledging it? Why now are they bringing all this information forward? And admittedly, there's not a lot of information. There's anecdotal, right? They're they're quoting the number of cases that they looked at and they could only explain one, but they're not giving us any details as far as, well, what was described? Where was it reported? Who reported it? Um, So we're only getting table scraps right now, but I think it lends to the possibility that down the line, we may get some disclosure uh people were very disappointed when the pentagon report came out i think some people truly felt they were going to wheel out a ufo from roswell and a dead alien body um i always say if you were disappointed you had your your bar set too high as far as I right, expect- right, right. they were never going to it. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't surprise me at all what came out and um but i think we have to concede though that um we as civilians have the luxury of being loose-lipped right We can talk about anything, say anything, offer our opinion. It's something altogether different when you're in the military and you're in the government because we have to acknowledge if they have detailed information regarding UFOs and let's go one step further, UFO technology. Let's say that they do have physical artifacts. They do know how these craft operate. They're trying to replicate that technology. To arbitrarily disclose that to the American public in so doing you have now just informed your adversaries, Russia, North Korea, China, that you have this technology. Why would we do that? that, that, that you have a level of responsibility once you're in a position of government, military, or, or within the intelligence community to restrict certain information. You may right. think from an ideological, philosophical, well, the public has a right to know. Yes, maybe to some degree, but Russia doesn't need to know, North Korea doesn't need Russia. to know, China doesn't need to know. Uh, if we have this technology or glimmers of insight into the technology, you do not wanna advertise that to your adversary. So there's very practical, real world reasons why some of this information must remain classified.
0: I read that you assisted in diagnosing and treating patients right, with uh, various sleep disorders. Are you still yeah. doing that
1: to this day? No, no. Uh, my background My background started in, I've been in healthcare now about 30 years, I guess, and uh, or, uh, not quite 30 years, 28 years or something. I don't know. I lose track. Uh, but I started in the sleep medicine field, and I was a registered polysomnographic technician. I was the technical director of one of the largest uh, regional uh, clinical sleep labs in St. Louis at, at uh, Washington University School of Medicine. And uh, we conducted inpatient and outpatient sleep testing procedures, and also were involved in a number of clinical research trials for devices and medications. So was, have you had any instances where there was a connection to UFOs with that? With yes. Well, in a roundabout way, uh, you know, people talk about the abduction phenomenon and elements of the abduction phenomenon. And some skeptics have said, well, some of this could be explained by sleep disorders. And I think the key word there is some. Uh, I'm here to tell you uh, repeatedly in a clinical lab environment, having the patient connected to all types of equipment, uh, mes- measuring the physiological parameters, videotaping them, et cetera, listening to them. Uh, in a controlled clinical lab experience, people have described things that you would swear were alien abduction. Uh, people with narcolepsy, they'll, they'll have periods of sleep paralysis. And during that time, they'll either have hypnopopic or hypnagogic hallucinations as they're uh, starting to go to sleep or waking up from sleep. They're paralyzed. They see lights flying around in the room. They see figures around the bed. And again, in a clinical lab environment with other technicians in the room, patients hooked up to mater- uh, material and equipment to measure every physio. I'm watching their heart rate, respiration, brain waves. There's, there's no missing time. <laughs> there's no upset in the recording. Uh, These people were asleep, but when they woke up, they described elements that parallel almost verbatim much of the alien abduction phenomenon. So what I like to say is much like UFO sightings, Chris, the vast majority can be explained away. And I would argue with abduction phenomenon, some going back to that word, some some of these, I think, could be explained away as uh, sleep paralysis, narcolepsy. Uh, hypnagogic hallucinations, and not by everyone. Again, I'm just simply saying there could be a subset that could. And if you don't know anything about sleep disorders and you're fantasy prone, or you like watching and thriving, watching UFO shows that talk about alien abduction, and you suddenly start manifesting these symptoms, it would be logical for that person to say, what happened to me is what these people have been describing regarding alien abduction. Therefore, I must have been abducted. Right. So I, I just think we need to be careful. Uh, just like a UFO sighting, you just don't arbitrarily immediately jump to UFO as the explanation. Right. Let's eliminate all these issues. I've always said for the abduction phenomenon, and I, and I did some regressive hypnosis w- with abductees back in the early 90s when John Carpenter was involved in UFO research for a very short time. Uh, I just found it wasn't the area I wanted to focus on. Um but I, I find it uh, interesting that if we're going to do abduction research, it has to be, go beyond the confines of just hypnosis. I've always said, and again, uh, and I mean this in, in respect to people that have had abduction experiences, we first need to rule out all prosaic explanations. Let's, let's do some blood work. Let's ensure there's no uh, pharmaceutical or illicit drugs in the system that could be leading to these people believing that they're having these experiences. We need to have a comprehensive uh, family history. Does this person have a family history of sleep disorders or schizophrenia? These are logical things that we should be eliminating uh, before we jump to the alien abduction conclusion. So I always said blood work, toxicology, family history, of physical and mental disease in the family. Once all that's been ruled out, then under the, the care of a licensed and trained hypnotherapist, preferably someone that's not invested in studying alien abduction, but by a clinical psychologist that maybe is trained in hypnosis under those conditions, I think it would be valid to then go through that. Uh, Unfortunately, and I won't mention names, uh, some popular abduction researchers that I've seen video clips of, I've seen them actually offering these people under hypnosis, leading questions. Right. And so I always like to say for those that don't understand hypnosis can be a valid tool, but just like any tool, Chris, I can have a hammer and you know what I can do with that hammer. I can build a house. You know what I can also do. I can kill you with it. Exactly. It's a tool and you need to be very careful on how you wield that tool. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So let's get into the national UFO historical records center. What is it?
1: Why was it created? Yeah. Uh, Two weeks ago yesterday, actually, uh, from when we're filming this, uh, we had our press releases go out. It's something that I've been working on behind the scenes for about a year now, a little over a year, actually. And uh, I've been working with a group of outstanding historians and colleagues, Barry Greenwood, Jan Aldridge, I mentioned earlier, Rob Swiatek, who sits on the board of MUFON, uh, Dr. Mark Rodiger, uh, who is the scientific director for the Center for UFO Studies, he studied under Dr. Hynek and took over as scientific director, and my dear friend, Rod Dyke, up in the Seattle, Washington area. All of us have been researching uh, UFO cases, UFO history, and not only as uh, historians, but archivists, collectors of this material. And uh, Barry Greenwood, Jan Aldridge, and Rod Dyke each uh, possess a collection that could encompass a small home. Uh, just to give you an idea of the scale, the, yeah. the amount of material that they've gathered. Much of this is one of a kind, much like my collection. A lot of the material I have here behind me and off camera were uh, the personal case files and collections of researchers that uh, were dying or have pat- had passed on. Uh, Lou Farish was a dear friend and historian. And uh, when he was uh, passing, he stated he wanted his collection to come here. So, I always like to say this is a collection of collections. Uh, In May of this year, I went to Phoenix, Arizona, and obtained uh, the Antonio Junius collection. Which, if you look behind me here, there's a at the very top across the bookcase. These are all foreign books. Oh, all just the ones on top here. These are all foreign books from various countries: Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Japan. France, Germany, uh, South American countries, various South American countries. Um, and that's just a portion of it. Um, but my collection is growing. I keep getting more and more collections donated. And we, we created this new organization out of necessity. We didn't create it just to create a new org. The UFO community doesn't need yet one more organization. Um, yeah. Myself and my colleagues have realized that we are consistently starting to run out of square footage. I put this new edition on, as I mentioned, in 2017, and we've already surpassed that in a matter of a few years. Half of my two-car garage is filled with rows of racks of banker's boxes of historical material. Uh, As we speak, a pallet is getting ready to ship from the UK from my friend, Philip Mantle. He's shipping out a pallet of UK UFO material. Uh, That's going to be arriving, and I'm not sure where I'm going to go with that, but I'm going to have to make room for that. my friends uh, that I mentioned, they are also in a similar situation, but even more so. Uh, I'm the youngest team member. I'm 54 years old, and they are now in their 60s, 70s, and some are even pushing 80. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen when I die with my collection. So out of that rationale, we realize that this concept of a home-based archive, we've outgrown right. that. We've done a great job you know, doing it as we've done it. But we're really, uh, we've outgrown that. So we decided that we need to try to formulate and create a freestanding archive. And all of the gentlemen I've mentioned have agreed to centralize their material. Some's in Chicago, some's in Virginia, some is in Washington State, as I mentioned, some's in Connecticut, Boston. Uh, We're going to bring all that material together here in Albuquerque. And we created a nonprofit organization, the National UFO Historical Records Center, to raise money to hopefully try to have a building donated to us where we can bring all this material together under one roof and create a credible, academic-based archive. Think of the National Archives, very mainstream, very credible, but a National Archives for UFO research, dedicated only to UFO research. We've never had anything on this scale ever created in this country before. And so I think it's, it's exciting in that sense. Uh, But the two pillars of what we're trying to do is centralization of information. But as I mentioned earlier, once the material is centralized, digitization of that material. We will always keep the physical holdings like these 1949 reports I was telling you about earlier. We will always keep the originals so people can come and look at the original documents, but we want to digitize it for the worldwide community so you can access that online. Uh, We have hundreds of thousands of news clippings and newspapers we have thousands of audio historic audio recordings photographs slides microfilm case files monographs books journals newsletters uh, original artwork i mean any type of medium you can think of we have documenting this history and the collection that i have would be magnified probably tenfold once we bring all these collections together. But as I like to say, we need a home for the history. And so uh, I've made uh, some inroads. We've had incredible media coverage in the last two weeks. It actually hit the AP Newswire, US News World Report picked up the story. We're getting a lot of interest I'm fielding a lot of emails. Uh, We're looking uh, for continued donations to help us with the effort to preserve this history for future generations. But in addition, I've made inroads with local politicians and business leaders. And over the course between now and Christmas, over the next few weeks, uh, I'll be having some meetings, including with the mayor of Rio Rancho here, where I live in New Mexico. And he's very eager to talk to me about the project and see if there's any assistance that he might be able to provide. We want to create an academic institution whereby UFO researchers, UFO enthusiasts can come, but we're not here to be the first church of the ET for UFO believers In lectures that I've given across uh, the state here in New Mexico, I've had people from Sandia National Laboratories and Los Alamos National Laboratories come up to me stating, I really appreciate your credible, grounded approach towards the subject. I'm a research scientist at Sandia or Los Alamos. I did a podcast about three weeks ago, and I mentioned that. And two days later, I get an email from a gentleman. His first name is Mark. And he said, Dave, he goes, I'm one of those scientists you talked about. He goes, I heard your podcast. I'm excited about what you're doing. I'll be retiring from Sandia next year, and I'd love to to follow your work and help you any way I can. So we want to create an institute where mainstream scientists, and we talked about this earlier, Chris, perhaps government, military, and intelligence people would even come to to draw from our historical data. What we have is unique and one of a kind. There aren't copies circulating out there. There aren't digital copies that the government has access to. If they want our data, they're going to have to come to us to acquire these records. And we want to make it available to everyone, even the skeptics that are out there that are hearing this. If you're a skeptic and you want to write about a skeptical attitude towards the UFO subject covering the last 75 years, you need access to the original materials. So like a library, you don't go into a library, Chris, and they say, why are you here? Because we need to know before we let you check out any books. <laughs> we ears. have to be like a library. We're open to everyone. Yeah. everyone. And so the only agenda we have is, is not to believe in UFOs. The only agenda we have is to preserve the historical record, period.
0: That's our goal. Awesome. So it, it's going to be in New Mexico, right? You're just looking for a home.
1: We're looking for a building in the Albuquerque-Rio Rancho area. Rio Rancho is directly a suburb of of Albuquerque. And uh, between the two, we're trying to find some viable options. Uh, We may have a lead already on one in Albuquerque. And next week, I I may be meeting with a a state legislator to talk about that.
0: And so um, do you see this eventually in the future expanding to the point where maybe you have like a historical center in Florida, one in Cali, maybe internationally,
1: it de- it depends. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to predict what, what the future holds. Uh, in the short term, we would be happy just to have a warehouse, to be quite honest, but right. ideally, a, a nice commercial building with a nice, you know, front would be nice. And depending on the funding that we may hopefully raise or the building that we have donated, if we have enough square footage, we would also like to have a small museum interpretive center to display some of these pieces that yeah, I was describing, elements awesome. of the history And some of the artwork, beautiful artwork that we've acquired over the years, and uh, even possibly a small theater where we could have guests from out of town come in and give presentations. And so uh, I would argue, you know, uh, our our dream is only as big as the funding that we can receive and the donations that we can receive. But we are nonprofit. Uh, We did that intentionally to help generate uh, donations and funds. And people can go to our website and learn more about the organization, and and even if they feel like making a donation, they can do that as well. That's
0: great, David. So, um, send me the links to everything that you want me to display on on the on the on the YouTube page and Absolutely. my other platforms. Thank you so much for for spending time with me. I, I appreciate it. Always enjoy it, Chris. <laughs> hey, yeah.
1: Hopefully the 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 wait was worth it. <laughs>
0: Oh, it was definitely worth it. I I went for sure. I went out with a bang this year, (laughs) but uh, I was going to ask you what's next, but obviously you have a lot on your plate with the, with the historical center, but do you have any other
1: projects, anything? Well, I wrapped up, like I said, a lecture tour this year, but uh, as we look at 2023, I'm really going to stay close to home. Uh, My wife and I, we got married in May, 2019. We were congratulations. thank you. We were going to take a honeymoon in spring of 2020, and then a little thing called COVID came along. Oh, yeah, that was great. And so we are now to a point where we can finally look at uh, taking our honeymoon, which we we just booked uh, on Thanksgiving. Awesome. And so uh, I'm going to be doing that as having a little bit more family time, but really focused uh, not on lecturing this year, but really focused on meeting with politicians, business leaders, people that can help you know make this dream a reality. All right, David, thank you. I would love to have you back on. All right, my man. Absolutely, Chris. I always enjoy it. And I'll email those uh, those images and links and everything for you. Right. And if you can send me a thumbnail, a picture of yourself, like that. You would I just, I, I just got name. some new PR photos. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, for, for the organization. So my, my board told me I need some good professional photos. Yeah. So we got some
0: taking. <laughs> All right, boss, stay in touch, okay? All right, you have a good All weekend, right. Chris. Have Thanks. a great day, you too. Bye. All
1: right, Bye. take care.